a long time ago on a spinner rack far, far away. Comic Book Time Machine, Episode 94, part of Ben's Marvel's Cosmic Comics Project, taking a look at all of Marvel's licensed sci-fi comic books from cover date November 1978. Hello, time travelers, and welcome back to another episode of The Comic Book Time Machine Presents Marvel's Cosmic Comics. I'm Ben, Ben Avery, and I just got back from a trip back, back in time. To do what? To buy comics. That's what. I went back in time to July of 1978, where I was able to find the latest round of comics to hit the stands, and... Here's how this works here at Marvel's Cosmic Comics, uh, presented by the Comic Book Time Machine. Uh, We go back in time, and we find Star Wars on the the spinner rack, and this time I I went to a gas station this time, and this gas station was well-stocked with their Marvel Marvel Comics, and uh, I look for Star Wars, and then I look for everything else that they licensed. So I'm not picking up Spider-Man, I'm not picking up X-Men, I'm not picking up Avengers, I'm not picking up Captain America, no, I'm picking up Star Wars. And what else am I picking up? Well, this month, cover dated October 1978, I, I picked up Star Wars, I picked up The Human Fly, I picked up John Carter, Warlord of Mars, I picked up Godzilla, and I picked up, uh, I, I lied, I guess, I picked up a Spider-Man comic, yes, this month, Marvel team-up featuring Spider-Man. That's a team-up book. It's a fun book where you get to get a nice sample of the, the Marvel Universe. And I'm not sure how much I should say about this particular issue because, frankly, I, I'd, I'd almost like it to be a surprise when we get to it because it is just... It's gonzo, all right? It's it's bizarro world. Um it's not the greatest comic in the world, but I bought it specifically because it is just such an oddball kind of thing. I, I will say this. In the little box, you know the box with the character uh, that's in the upper left-hand corner of the Marvel Comics covers? There's a picture of Spider-Man because it's Marvel Team-Up featuring Spider-Man. And there's a picture of Stan Lee. And then there's this stylized N. A stylized N that used to be used for a network, the network being NBC. Now, no, this is not a return of Man from Atlantis, who I can't remember if that was NBC or not. It's been been a little while now, but no, it's not a return of Man from Atlantis, although that would be a welcome, welcome uh, team-up for Spider-Man if that was to happen here. Uh, There's a a man with a sword, a, a samurai, it looks like, and he seems to be fighting or getting ready to fight another samurai. 
And I, I think that's all I'm going to say for now. We will get to it. It will have its own segment. It's not going to be relegated to Ben's Bullpen Bulletin. No, this is licensed, and it's Spider-Man, so that makes it sci-fi. Uh, even though the characters aren't fantasy or sci-fi. Although Human Fly, I mean, he's not... Well, he would be sci-fi, I think. Science fantasy. Um, anyway, uh, speculative fantasy as I like to call it sometimes. Anyway, we're here for a Star Wars comic first, and then in the next segments we will do those other books as well. And we'll also get into some Devil Dinosaur and Machine Man. These are all on the stands, July 1978, but they're all cover date October 1978. That's my birth month, and I, I've, I've talked to you about this before. There's just something special when you pick up a comic that has your birth month on it, even though you know they didn't go on sale. That means they were coming off the stands during that month. I don't care. It's labeled October, and this one, for Star Wars, it's labeled October, and it's issue number 16, which is my birthday, October 16th. So I look at the cover, and I see October, I see 16, and I say to myself, this comic was made for me. And when we get into this actual issue, you're going to find out more about why this comic was made for me. Kind of. We'll get into it. So, let's get into it. Star Wars issue number 16 is called The Hunter. The cover has a picture of this guy I've never seen before. He has a skull symbol on his right shoulder. He's wearing huge body armor. The cover says The Hunter, but it also says death and destruction are his tools. The Star Warriors are his targets. And then on the cover, it has Luke Skywalker. It has Chewbacca. It has Han Solo. It has R2-D2 and C-3PO, and it has Jackson, the green space rabbit. He has returned. He has returned. Wow, I did not know there was another story with Jackson, the space, ra- ra- the space rabbit, in it. I thought we were done. I thought George Lucas hated that rabbit, and they just never came back to it. I was wrong. And looking at this cover, I have to say, when I first opened this up and started reading... I have never been more delighted to be wrong. Actually, that's probably not true. I probably have been more delighted to be wrong. But in this case, I am still very delighted to be incorrect. So the story uh, is by Archie Goodwin. He's the writer and the editor. Walt Simonson and Bob Wiasek are the guest artists. Uh, Denise Wool is a letterer. Bob Sharon is the colorist. And James Shooter is consulting editor. So we've got a strong team here, too. A really strong team. Is the story strong? You know what? Let's get into it because I have to say this is the weirdest Star Trek or Star Wars comic that I have read that I can remember. Okay, I mean, you throw in all the weird Don Juan uh, Quixote and Jackson the Space Rabbit and all that stuff in those earlier issues. I think it's eight through ten. You throw all those things in, and that's yeah, it's bizarre. But it's not gonzo. And, you know, maybe this isn't so gonzo. After I first read it, though, I was just, like I said, delighted. This was a really interesting and bizarre read because it's not at all what I expected, especially looking at the cover. Now, why is that? Well, we'll get into it. Let's get a little bit of the plot here because there's a lot of plot. And I'm going to spoiler. It's a pretty decent story. There is a couple plot holes. 
where I just have to scratch my head and say, okay, do I care or not? Does the story, is everything else, the art, the story, the characters, all that stuff, is that good enough to make me not care that there's a couple of problems with the story? And generally speaking, I have to say, maybe, <laughs> maybe. Uh, so here's the, the, the character on the cover with his great big giant gun that has a bayonet on it. It's a giant laser cannon with a bayonet, and he's wearing that armor. His name is Valance, and he's a bounty hunter. And he's attacking this medical facility, this neutral medical facility. Um, you know, the, the, the Empire and the Rebellion, and, and it seems like anyone is welcome to come to this place to receive services for medical problems people who are dying and stuff like that. He's not attacking it, though, for any kind of bounty. He's attacking it to destroy his own past. And as he's going through, I mean, they're going through just, they're blasting everything and everyone and destroy. And basically, they're trying to get to the computer core, the, the center. And he experiences some regret as he's doing this. Uh, but it's not regret because he's not getting a bounty, not regret because he's having some sort of humanist change of heart. No, He's having regret because he can't take pleasure in killing the droids on the base. Or, I should say, destroying the droids, because in his mind, maybe they don't have a soul. He is a droidist. He hates droids. And if you remember, in the first Star Wars movie, there's that one scene where the, the droids are trying to come into the cantina, and the guy says, we don't serve their kind here. And, you know, the, the, so it was kind of this, well, why do people not like droids when clearly they're lovable? Like R2-D2 and C-3PO. Why do they hate droids? Well, we find out later on in the Star Wars uh, prequels that the reason is because of the whole droid army and everything like that, and so they're not as trustworthy and, you know, whatever. Here we have a guy, though, who is absolutely, he just hates droids and wants to destroy as many droids as possible and hates droid lovers as well. And it really fuels him. It, it, it just, he he's passionate about it. I mean, he really wants to destroy droids. So while they're doing this, though, there's this old man that they find. And he's mumbling about Han Solo. He's mumbling about the boy, the farm boy, his droid. He's mumbling about the, <laughs> the green rabbit man and Amaza. Basically, he's mumbling about all the things that happened in Star Wars issues 8 through 10. And the guy is Don Juan Quixote. You know, Obi-Wan Kenobi, this is Don Juan Quixote from those issues, issues 8 through 10, who he was hurt, he survived. He survived, he's alive, but he's on this medical facility. And they realize, okay, Han Solo, there's a huge bounty for this guy from Jabba the Hutt. And then there's something else. Something else that starts clicking with Jax or with with Valance. And so he's satisfied that his objective is done. The medical facility has been destroyed. They blow it up. Which means Don Juan Quixote is now dead. So pleasant surprise and disappointment. But now they're gonna go after Jackson, the giant six foot tall green rabbit. Because they are gonna find him and get the information for where the boy and his droids are and Han Solo. I mean, basically, they're going after this bounty. They find Jackson on this backwater planet, but Jackson won't talk. And they actually they hang him upside down and they try and interrogate him. But uh, he's rescued by Amaza. Unfortunately, 
after he's rescued by Amaza, she lets it slip where that world was. Uh, she says, um, she she says to uh, to Jackson, some fun, eh, Fuzzy? Like being back on Aduba three with the man and the gang, or with Han and the gang, and they overhear it. So now Jack uh, Valance and his men know, but Jackson and Amaza. They, they can't just let it be. So they race Valance and his men to get back to the planet. They do. They get back to the planet. They arrive there first. And they start warning their friends. And they say, Jim, there's a there's a price on your head. These guys want you because there's a price on your head. And Jim's like, I haven't done anything except for start of the family. I'm expecting my first kid. So they don't know why there could be a price on Jim's head. Now we go back to Valance and we get some flashbacks to Valance's past. He used to be an Imperial trooper, almost died in a battle against the rebellion. And then uh, he was saved, but at a price. And that price was something that would make him never be able to be an Imperial trooper ever again, never be able to stand with pride with them ever again. Then he puts in a tape, literally uh, puts in a tape to watch one page of the Star Wars characters. Luke, Han, Chewbacca, Leia, Obi-Wan Kenobi, C-3PO, R2-D2, Darth Vader. They're all there. He gets their backstory. And it says that, uh, but the boy was, but it was the boy who fired Valance's fury for his part was done with the cooperation, indeed the friendship of two droids. And he can't bear that. So they come to the planet. Jackson is there. They get in space battle with Jackson. Jackson is put into a forced landing just outside Jim's village. And as Valance's crew comes out, Jim starts a Bantha stampede. Most of the crew is down and out. Valance is surrounded. And then he realizes that Jim, Jim's not Luke Skywalker. He's not the farm boy he was looking for. He expected because Han Solo was there. And there's this farm boy with a friend who is a droid that that's Luke, but it's not Luke. So he blasts them. He's surrounded by Jackson and uh, Amaza and, and Jim. He blasts them with a weapon that comes out of, well, where did it come from? I mean, he didn't. He wasn't holding one in the previous panel, and all of a sudden he's blasting them. Well, we find out as he escapes, and he's on his ship, he's flying away, and we see that he's been damaged. And he peels away his skin, Terminator-style. And find, we find out he's a cyborg, and that in that accident, or in that battle, I should say, it wasn't an accident, it was a battle, um, he was saved by being made into a cyborg. And so it makes it ironic that a robot hater is half robot himself. And, man, okay. <laughs> this is, this was a fun comic. This was a lot of fun. Uh, it was interesting because it's a Star Wars comic and the characters from Star Wars appear on one page. So if this might be the comic that makes uh, Luke, George Lucas say, get rid of the Green Rabbit, I can understand that. I mean, George Lucas's characters are literally on one page. And it's a flashback page. And it's not only a flashback page, literally, Valance sits down on his spaceship and watches the movie. He watches the first movie and we get that one-page recap, but it's he's he's got a tape that he stole from a rebel spy, and 
<laughs> it's kind of funny to me that he's sitting down and watching the movie. And this is at a time, I guess beta was around. Um, but, you know, VHS wasn't, wasn't huge then. But I guess beta was around because people were making bootleg tapes already of the Star Wars holiday special that appeared on, uh, I can't remember what network that was on. But um, <laughs> they, uh, it was happening. But he literally pops in a, a tape of Star Wars, or you know maybe at this point it's been changed to uh, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Anyway, the other thing I do have to throw out there is even though this is Walt Simonson and he is a fantastic, fantastic artist, I just have to say Darth Vader is hard to draw. <laughs> he he is, and uh, it's just not a very good image of Darth Vader fighting Obi Wan Kenobi. Everything else, art-wise, is pretty good. And there's energy, there's emotion on the faces, there's um, there's pathos. I mean, that last panel of the book where he peels away the skin from his, his face and his hand, it's sad. It's not heartbreaking completely. I mean, this is a murdering murderer who murders, but it's sad. Uh, just the look on, his, on the half of his face that has emotion um it's it's a sad panel and everything is really exciting and it just i really really <laughs> i have to say the artwork is great for me the story is pretty decent for me the story structure is nice because you have that reveal at the end which is you know okay it's a nice reveal but everything in this issue has led up to that reveal now the whole robot hating thing doesn't it's not the greatest thing in the world. It's not the greatest motivation in the world uh, at all. But um, at the beginning where he's trying to destroy his past and he's also trying to um, you know, take pleasure in destroying the robots and then he's just absolutely motivated to get Luke Skywalker because Luke Skywalker not only dealt a serious blow against the Empire but dealt a serious blow against the Empire with robot friends. And all that stuff... It's revealed throughout the thing, but at that first scene where he is going on this mission without any bounty, well, why? What's you know? And there's there's this mystery, and then when you get to the end, it's an ending that I wasn't expecting. And when you get to this end that you're not expecting, this is one of those nice reveals where everything later earlier in the issue clicks into place. So while the motivation is not the greatest, and the whole <laughs> I'm. I mixed up Jim with Luke Skywalker. That also doesn't really ring too true. Um, and then there's the whole flashback where he finds out stuff that he would he really doesn't necessarily have access to. I mean, should he be able to put in a tape that has all the information about what happened on the Death Star and to the Death Star? I mean, I guess if it's information from Rebel sources, but... It just it that's a little bit eh. and then the whole the in that information the information is not only there but um, the information includes information that Luke Skywalker is friends with these droids not just using these droids that would be I wouldn't expect that to be in a spy report but I guess I could see uh, you know I, I guess spy reports don't aren't just about you know hard facts and information but also motivation and. Uh, you might put in a spy report that, that Luke actually cares about R2-D2 and C-3PO because that could be used against him. Okay, so I've talked myself out of it. Maybe that would be in a spy report. It still feels a little... Um, it, it just doesn't... 
it just doesn't ring true to me. Uh, the whole the information he got and where the information took him and that he had such detailed information and yet it was not detailed enough because he thought this farm boy on this other planet was actually Luke Skywalker. But uh, everything else, though, I mean, it, it works. It works well, and it brings me to that end. This is a nice, self-contained little story about a bounty hunter named Valance. Bounty hunters, let's get to that now. This is pre-Empire Strikes Back, and it's kind of funny because this issue has a few different things that kind of telegraph forward toward Empire Strikes Back. I don't think this is stuff that Luke Skywalker lifted from this, or not Luke Skywalker, George Lucas lifted from uh, Empire Strikes Back, and I'm not sure how much these guys knew what was going to happen in Empire Strikes Back anyway when they were doing these stories. But, first of all, you have um, the Bounty Hunters, and the bounty hunters are seeking... I guess Greedo was a bounty hunter. So maybe this is not so much looking forward to Empire Strikes Back. But it is maybe looking backward to the first Star Wars movie. And saying, okay, maybe uh, extrapolating on, on things like Greedo. But then you have... And this kind of cracks me up. Um, you have uh, a cyborg. Now... Darth Vader himself is a cyborg, and Luke Skywalker is going to become a cyborg. And here you have Valance, who reveals that he is a cyborg. Now he's revealing it in a moment of you know solitude. He's not revealing it to anyone other than us, the reader. But um, Darth Vader is a cyborg. He's probably pretty well known as a cyborg. But Valance just can't serve in the Empire as a trooper anymore because he's a cyborg. It's just It's just too much of a... Too much of a stigma. Well, no, I don't think so. I don't think Darth Vader is really, you know, that against people of his own kind. Um, unless maybe Darth Vader just really resents being a cyborg and <laughs> says, "Well, I am a cyborg. I hate that. I hate myself because I'm a cyborg. So I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna um, make it so no one else can serve in the Empire who is a cyborg." I doubt that, though. I also don't think they really knew how much that figures into Darth Vader's character. Uh, we certainly didn't know. I mean, obviously he had the breathing apparatus, but it, it, it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's a little goofy. And then the other thing that, that uh, kind of references to The Empire Strikes Back is the next issue blurb on the final page says, next issue, The Empire Strikes. <laughs> so uh, this is, I I have to say, that's all fun. That's all. It's it's all good fun here. It's a fun sci-fi adventure following a bounty hunter who has a tragic secret, and it is a well-written, tightly—I won't say tightly plotted, but tightly revealed mystery. And all things considered, I mean, I don't know where this guy is going. I don't know where, if he's coming back. I mean, the Empire is striking in the next issue. But um, at, at this point in time, I'm I'm reading this and thinking they, they, they better bring Valence back because he's going to be a pretty serious um, antagonist for our crew. And the other thing I'm saying is they better bring our crew back <laughs> because one page, that's just not cutting it, man. That is really surprising that this whole thing is secondary characters who were created for the comic. And that just, that's a bizarre thing to me. I pick up a Star Wars comic. I'm expecting to read the adventures of the people 
who are from my movies, man. I mean, I remember reading a comic that was about Lando Calrissian, and that was okay, because he was from the movie. I didn't mind reading those solo adventures by, well, with, with Han Solo, because he's from the movie. Yeah, give him some supporting cast, but make them supporting cast. In this case, <laughs> it's a little bit goofy to me that they have gone this far uh, in bringing in new stuff but I'm assuming it's new stuff that's going to set up some of the problems and some of the situations and some of the antagonists in the future. And now I have some hope. Could we see Jackson again after this? It's possible. It's possible that we could see him again, not just on a joke cover published by Marvel Comics in their modern Star Wars comics. But it's also very likely that that we won't. It should also be said, Jackson also brought with him some of the um, rabbit humor, um, references to Looney Tunes. In fact, there's a character named Daffy, who is one of the ones who are are interrogating him. Um, and he does say, "What in the holy hutch?" I mean, there's it's it's not the greatest thing. Now, Amaza, it was nice to see her back as well, and she still has that kind of femme fatale kind of uh, air around her. Um, her best line, I love this line, is. Uh, the high life on these backwater worlds can get pretty low. I like that. I like seeing Jim happy, married, expecting his first baby or their first baby. And then Don Juan Quixote, he's dead. That was sad. This comic, it really did uh, elicit emotional responses from me. And that's the best kind of storytelling is, is storytelling that connects on an emotional level, you know, in whatever way. That's why... You know, you watch a horror movie. You watch a horror movie to be, you know, be, to connect on that visceral level. You watch a comedy to laugh. You watch a romantic comedy or a chick flick or whatever to feel, well, to laugh and to feel sad and then to feel happy again. And and you read Star Wars comics to get a little bit of excitement and maybe some thoughtful sci-fi. And there is traces of thoughtful sci-fi here with the character of Valance. So that's all I have to say about this comic right now. But boy, am I glad I got to read this comic. This was a fun one. Now, the next issue, it says The Empire Strikes. I did, you know, I it's not. <laughs> next issue, I think, is a fill-in issue. If I look at the cover, special issue, An Untold Tale of Luke Skywalker's Past. It's actually Crucible, not The Empire Strikes. So, okay. So maybe we're not getting The Empire Strikes yet, but that is okay by me so next up we're going to be taking a look uh might as well go with human fly first and that seems to be the trend anyway we're going to go with human fly we're going to end with john carter but in between there's gonna be some godzilla and and that spider-man that i was teasing um (laughs) but yeah next segment will be human fly issue number 14 So issue number 14, Human Fly. The cover has Human Fly falling from a blimp. Two children are in the blimp looking at him fall toward his doom in the cityscape below. And then there's some other blimps behind them that is you know, coming, coming toward them. And it says, Fear over Fifth Avenue. So we, we know exactly what we're getting into. It's Human Fly. There's blimps and the city of New York. So does it deliver on the cover's 
promise? Well, we'll, we'll get into that because uh, that's what we do here on Marvel's Cosmic Comics, the comic book time machine. We, we go back in time. We buy these comics off the shelf. Now, I'm not buying because of the cover. I'm buying because it it's what I do. <laughs> but um, this cover would probably not have caused me to uh, to pick up the book outside of the framework of collecting them all. Now, in inside we have uh, the story is by uh, Bill Mantlo, which is the whole way through. Uh, we have Frank Robbins as well as the penciler, and the inker is Frank Springer, and the letterer Rick L. Parker, and the colorist is Don Warfield. And indeed, <laughs> this uh, this this uh, opening splash page explains everything. Um, Human Fly is boarding a blimp uh, on a rope ladder. And the blimp has a banner on it that says Human Fly. While there are two kids who are pointed out by a caption box with an arrow that sticks out of it. Um, who are getting onto another blimp that says Fund for the Handicapped. And uh, one of the people says, look, there's Human Fly boarding his flagship. This stunt has the makings of history. But the caption pointing at these children says, or of tragedy expected by none. <laughs> and the title, Death Rides the Big Balloons. Because <laughs> death, death's an adult now. Death wouldn't ride the little balloons. Death would ride the big ones because it's a big boy. And yeah, so <laughs> I, I have to say, Sometimes the human fly gets me, and sometimes the human fly doesn't, and sometimes I wonder if I get the human fly. But, um, yeah, it's... <laughs> well, let, let's get into the story, I guess. Um, the story starts out with, like I said, that's that's splash page, but then it also gets into um, the the setup of, of the thing. And so you open it up, and there's actually a double page splash uh, sort of. It's it's two-thirds, the top two-thirds of two pages uh, in a double-page splash of all of the balloons, uh, the blimps, rather, uh, that are getting ready for what I think is a, a race. Um, it introduces all the other balloons, and I think, oh, we're in for, like, another uh, wacky races like we did with the race cars in issue number two or three or whatever that was. But uh, we actually then leave them as interesting as they look and as uh, colorful as some of the characters just in single dialogue balloons uh, look like they might be, we're not coming back to them. We are leaving them completely because we're going to follow Human Fly. We're going to follow those two children. And so we're going to leave those other balloons for the actual story. And what is the actual story? Well, it just wouldn't be a Human Fly story without some child endangerment, right? Uh, you see, we've got Paul and we've got Marissa. And those are the two children who stowed away on that, un well, we don't know it was unpiloted, but it's an unpiloted drone blimp that is going to be used by the human fly for his latest stunt, which, when he finishes the stunt, will mark the beginning of the blimp race. So when he fin finishes the stunt, that's at, like the starter's pistol kind of thing. From what I could figure out, I believe that they say it directly, but it was just kind of a little convoluted. Anyway... Uh, this also wouldn't be a human fly story if the children didn't have some sort of disability. And in this case, it's a disability that actually directly affects the action of the story because when things start going wrong, they aren't able to just pick up the, the radio handset and tell anyone anything. Uh, also, they cause the things that go wrong. Now, they do it accidentally. They don't do it intentionally. They do it because they have brought aboard a transistor radio. 
And here we have, I mean, there's there's a lot of different things that this issue says, but if, if there's one thing to take away from it, uh, it's that um, having your electronics on during takeoff and descent can indeed cause electric interference. They are not lying when they tell you to turn off everything on an airplane because it really messes things up here. It's really the case here. So the blimps are going, and Human Fly, he begins to do the actual walk, and he, he's walking across a tightrope between the blimp that's piloted by one of his team, uh, Blaze, and the unpiloted drone blimp, which is also being controlled by Blaze. And so she's making sure that everything is done correctly. She's able to watch both blimps, and she's able to make sure the, the distance is correct to keep the line uh, taut enough. But... um. The static from Paul and Marissa's radio causes trouble, cuts in on the frequency, because they wanted to listen to what's going on so they could know what's going on. Now, I I didn't mention their disability. I, I, maybe I should have. The, the disability is that they uh, they can't speak. Neither of them can speak. They do. They are able to hear, which is why they brought the radio, and then they talk to each other using sign language, or as they call it here, hand alphabet which is an accurate description of what they are using if they are just spelling words. Um, we'll get into that maybe later on. But uh, slowly everyone starts realizing there's a problem. Blaze realizes something is wrong when she loses control of the drone blimp and loses communication. You know, it's c communication is cutting in and out. Fly realizes it when the line goes slack and he starts falling, and he has he's having to grab onto the line and stuff. Paul and Marissa realize it when they see everything start to go bad. And then everyone else is just watching, trying to figure out what's going on. Every single other character just doesn't matter, really, in this. Um, you know, Fly's team is, is running around. Harmony White is here reporting about things. But um, really all that matters is what's going on up above the ground. There is really nothing that I could see that was going on on the ground that actually pushed anything forward. Uh, for any characters, not that this is, not this is a, a real you know paragon of of character development, but um, uh, Blaze is a quick thinker because things are out of control with the drone. It's going to pull her own blimp out of control, so she um, pours on the speed, snaps the line because she doesn't want to cause a double disaster. It's just going to be a single disaster if, if something's going to happen with that drone. And maybe they can get control of it again, but she's she she can't do anything if she gets pulled down with it. And Human Fly, he, he's right there with her. He knows exactly what she's thinking. And he's hanging on to the end of the rope that is still connected to the drone blimp. And as he's climbing up, he sees the kids with their radio, realizes what's happening and everything. But, um, you know, uh, out of control blimps, they're going to crash. And so that does uh, beg a pretty significant question. Some may call it a plot hole, but why in the world did they think it would be wise to do this stunt with an unmanned drone? I mean, I can understand potentially that you have Blaze being able to control both of them to make sure that they're both doing exactly what they're supposed to do. I could take that. Uh, but then there's no reason to not have someone in the other blimp. There is absolutely no reason to not have someone there in case something goes wrong. Because what happened? Well, something goes wrong, terribly wrong. It's empty. It's a drone blimp, and so these kids are able to get on. And, by the way, the reason that they're going there is because they are um, currently orphans in a home that's not good. And so they are actually running away to try to get to Los Angeles where their aunt lives. And if they can get there, they can live with their aunt, and everything will be fine for them. 
Uh, so they have good motivation. I mean, as far as the story goes, I don't know the story creation, but I'm imagining potentially you have one of two situations. One is Bill Mantlo is told, hey, let's do a story where Human Fly is walking a tightrope between two blimps. Can you give us a story from that? Or Bill Mantlo is just trying to imagine you know, crazy stunts, and that's what he comes up with. Two blimps, he's on a tightrope. Uh, what... You know, we could cause trouble by having the blimps be, you know, threatened to be crashing into buildings or something like that, and they have to stop it. But why would they crash? And I could see the thought processes here. Um, it also just doesn't really work for me <laughs> yet, especially the whole transistor radio causing all this havoc to happen. Uh, so the line has broken. Um, Blaze is okay. Blaze is trying to figure out what she can do to get the, the blimp under control. She can't really do much. Um, I'm still questioning the wisdom of, of all the, you know, not having a pilot over there, but you still have human fly. Human fly potentially could, you know, climb the rope, but he falls. I mean, there's all sorts of problems because they're running real low in the city here. And uh, the transistor radio, when the kids realize what's going on, it actually gets knocked out of reach so they can't turn it off even though they're hearing chatter on the radio saying that's what's happened is that there's some interference and they figure out it's, it's us that's caused the interference. And of course they can't pick up the radio and talk and tell anyone what's going on. So anyway, fly uses what I have finally determined is his human flies super power. And, uh, you know, they say he's just a normal guy, a stunt man. He's not. He's not. He has an uncanny ability. And his uncanny ability is to use questionable comic book physics. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of superheroes are able to use questionable comic book physics. But that is all Human Fly has in his arsenal of powers. And so in this case, he uses a flagpole that's sticking off the side of the building to not only stop himself from plummeting to his death, but also to spring him right back up to the door of the drone blimp's gondola. And so he is, of course, not dead. He is able to save the day by using questionable comic book physics. And, you know, questionable comic book physics, like I said, it happens all the time. I'm even guilty myself of potentially writing some questionable comic book physics in some of my books. I'm just saying, sometimes it sticks out. And this is one of those times for me and... That it almost makes me want to say, okay, so why am I even going on this ride if I'm not going to be able to accept the things that I'm going to be seeing on the ride? And part of it is I've gone this far, 14 issues, why stop now? And part of it is there is potential. And Bill Mantlo has used the human fly and reached some pretty decent potential with him in a couple stories. And so I'm still enjoying when I come across that. But more often than not, you know, this is coming off on the side of not great and not so horrible that I'm, well, I am laughing at it. So maybe, maybe I'm wrong there, but, um, he gets up to the gondola and he communicates with Paul and Marissa using the hand alphabet. <laughs> okay. So, which, uh, fly learned the hand alphabet in the hospital when he was, you know, had his accident in North Carolina or whatever it was. Uh, he learned the hand alphabet and it's a good thing too. It's very convenient. He's able to talk with them as he grabs controls and time to stop the balloon from hitting anything, you know, a building or something in New York. And we have a happy ending. The kids, we find out 
uh, or human fly f- finds out that they were trying to get to their aunt in, in Los Angeles because they're orphans and he's going to make sure that it happens. He's going to make sure that they get there. And he has also learned a lesson. Now, it's not the lesson I would have chosen for him. The lesson I would have chosen for him was, you know, don't have a machine that's unmanned that could have problems, which is basically every single machine that, you know, like this is a blimp and a blimp has to rely on a lot of different factors as far as trying to control it and stuff. Um, it's just, and, and then the person who's controlling it anyway, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not the greatest setup, but it gets them where they want to go. And, you know, he saves the day. Uh, but the lesson he has learned is that he should always go back and check a stunt one more time for unforeseen occurrences. Cause even the human fly can become a little too sure of himself. And, you know, Human Fly, it's good that he's learned a lesson. This is character development, right? And uh, he should have learned this lesson long before as a stuntman, you know, who has stunts that do go wrong. I mean, it's cool. I just recently watched a, a um, documentary about Evil Knievel, and all the Evil Knievel stuff was cool. Now, it was uh, Johnny Knoxville, I think is the guy's name, who was a, one of the hosts and producer on it and inserts himself in it a little bit too much. And that part, I really didn't care for but when they're actually showing the evil Knievel stuff talking about the evil Knievel stuff uh this guy evil Knievel I mean his he was a stuntman but he was basically able to crash really well that's what he was good at he was able to crash he crashed all the time he broke bones all the time and but even he would like double check but not every time and so like his most famous stunt where he's going to do the rocket bike over the canyon and uh the, the chute deploys too early well, that would have been something that some people say a double check would have found. Some people say he did it on purpose, so he actually didn't crash on the other side. He was intentionally going to deploy the chute uh, so that he didn't, so he could land softly at the bottom of the canyon. And then some people say it was a design flaw. But whatever side you fall on with that, um, that was just another example of a stunt going wrong. Uh, Evil Knievel's real talent, I guess, was not just crashing well, but able to walk away from it. And he he was good at what he did, and he caught everyone's imagination. I mean, he, he caught Human Fly's imagination. Human Fly was doing what he was doing as a real stuntman by putting on the mask and putting on the costume and you know creating all this mystery because he's trying to get the attention that would be going to people like Evil Knievel. Now, Evil Knievel, uh, he had a fall from grace. Um, he beat up the man who wrote an unauthorized biography that was the man claimed that it actually was authorized, but evil Knievel read it, hated it. And literally, uh, he was, he came out of the hospital. He still had like a broken collarbone or something and beat the guy up with a baseball bat. And it was just a, a mess. And that just destroyed all of the potential, uh, television deals, toy deals, not, not potential toy deals. I mean, that was real toy deals that it destroyed. I mean, it was that was basically the end for him as far as his the majority of his popularity. Although I was into Evil Knievel even after. I mean, when I got into Evil Knievel, he was done with his career, but we were just still aware of him and aware of the things that he did. And we we were into it. Human Fly here. I mean, that's why he's doing what he's doing. Is uh, he's still riding that wave of stuntmen? You know, back in that that you know late seventies era and and so um yeah you you check twice though i mean that's what you do that's what you do especially if an unmanned ship that's going to be flying over a city 
So uh, the hand alphabet, I did look to see, you know, how much uh, the the hand alphabet might have been used back in in the 70s. And actually, I was surprised how far back the hand alphabet goes. Um, I did I did study American Sign Language for a little while, and that's what makes me wonder. You know, they call it the hand alphabet. That feels like someone talking about it that doesn't really know about it or only knows about the hand alphabet. And these kids, I would have thought, you know, at their age that they might have learned more than just the alphabet. But then again, maybe not. It's possible that wherever they were or wherever they were growing up, um, the people who were having to you know, teach them, maybe they didn't know or weren't aware of a broader language for people who use their hands uh, for their speech. And so there. What what didn't ring true for me is now kind of I'm I'm, I'm rethinking that maybe that maybe that would be okay to or uh, in the context of of this time period, um, <clears throat> so that that makes their story maybe even a little more tragic and they didn't have that support of the the deaf community because they're not deaf they're they're mute but they didn't have uh, a community support system to teach them actual American Sign Language. And they're they're just using you know the alphabet to spell these words, and so I guess I guess I can live with that. Um, I, I am kind of bothered that everything every kid has to be affected by some sort of disability. You know, it's, it's just all over. It's a thing for human fly, and I guess we just run with it. There is no extra material. There's no letters page. There's no fly pages. I should say. I know they've been promising a photo spread from when he visited the Marvel offices. That is not here, not yet. I don't know when that is going to happen. Uh, and there's no like special message from the human fly. Uh, and I don't know how many more issues we have left with the human fly. That's something I have not looked ahead. And I, I know that there's not a whole lot. I think we're past the back end of that. Um, but... I don't know when this will end, and so I don't know if this is just because they they know the writing is on the wall. He failed that exper that, that experiment. He failed that uh, stunt in Montreal where he was going to leap over all those buses and everything. And he's talking about making a comeback. He's talking about a music career, but what is really going to happen with him? I I, I don't know what's happening here. Uh, the other thing I would notice here: there's no villain, and so they're still sticking with not just a street level kind of thing that he's dealing with or you know lesser powered villains that he's dealing with but for the most part they're dealing with real people real in quotes who are having you know getting into trouble and and so you know there's not super spies in every issue and there's you know like in the the snowmobile episode there was a, a bear that was threatening a kid you know and, and his dad and um in this one, it's two kids who get into a spot where they get into trouble rather than they get into a spot where they're in trouble because they're near a bad guy or something like that. But I'd also argue there's not a lot of excitement, too. Uh, there's there's plenty you could do with this, but there's not enough cheese for me to really like it, and there's not enough uh, actual excitement for me to really like it, and it's not so bad, it's good, as I, I talked about before. Um, and the artwork is you know it's frank robbins he's doing fine he's he doesn't have to worry about doing man from atlantis anymore i had trouble with his artwork for man from atlantis as well because of some of the poses he would do and the same thing here the poses of the characters and just the way that they there's there's a, a real attempt to give them um energy and and motion uh but even when someone is just standing still he's trying to give them energy and motion it feels like and human fly moves like uh, 
he's a ballet contortionist. I don't know. And then the other thing that kind of bugged me with this was that there was, from the artwork anyways, that there was some of the page layout had arrows so you would know which panel to go to. And I always have a problem with that. I think that if you're going to draw a page, you either need to, if you're going to have some sort of weird layout, in the layout, there needs to be something in the layout itself, maybe wider uh, gutters between panels. So you're looking, you know, so the thinner gutter, you know, you look from one panel to the next that has the thinner gutter, and there's a wider um, gap between other panels, so you can kind of follow that, and it forms a line or something like that. The arrow thing is, is a cheat, and it kind of disrupts story for me whenever I come into a situation where the artwork is not doing its job and something else has to step in and do the job for it. And I just don't like page layouts where you have to use arrows uh, unless that was going to be your style, unless that was going to be on every page, and then it becomes like punctuation. And you don't pay attention to commas and periods. You don't pay attention to the word the when you're reading. You don't pay attention to the word said when you're reading. That's why it's okay when you're a writer and you're, you're writing a novel or something. It's okay to use the word said over and over and over again. You don't want to you know totally overuse it, but you're not going to run into a lot of problem with that because people just they, they, gla- they glance over it. it. It becomes a sight word where they don't even have to read it. It's just there and they understand what it is. It's punctuation. And so, yeah, if the whole style of the book were done in, the, in that way where, you know, there's arrows pointing from one panel to another, maybe. But um, I just feel like that's that's poor design, in, in my opinion, when you have to um, add things, extra things to, to tell the eye where to go. So that's just that's just me. Uh, overall, I mean, this is a, a nice middling human fly issue. Uh, you know, thirty five cents. It's still only thirty five cents. Uh, that's that's not a bad deal. You're getting seventeen pages of story, so you're you're paying two cents per page and one cent for the cover. That's a it's a deal. It's a deal. Now I paid more for that. If you consider inflation, when you're going back in time in a time machine. Because, of course, it's a time machine that I'm collecting these from and not a comic book convention dollar bin, which is the truth. That's where I found most of these human fly issues was I just happened upon them. And uh, I might have told this story before, but I was I just happened upon them. I wasn't even thinking human fly as a licensed book. But sure enough, when I saw them at the convention, I was already looking for Indiana Jones and looking for some of these other things that I needed to fill holes. And I thought, human fly? I'm grabbing it. I'm going for it. So I did. And generally speaking, glad I did. But the, for the most part, it's it's more of a historical curiosity for me and a lot less of an actual enjoyment for me. Now, I am curious about next issue because the only thing that this gives us as far in the way of editorial uh, is that there is a blurb at the bottom of the last page that says, Next Danger in the District of Columbia as the human fly faces war in Washington. I have no idea what that story is going to be about. It is quite possible that story will not be great, but I am very, very curious where this is going to go. But for now, I'm going to be moving on to the next segment, which is going to be Godzilla. We'll come back to human fly when we get into the next month. Right now, we're going to look at Godzilla's issue from October cover date 1978. And, uh, again, I'm not sure what to expect from Godzilla right now. I can't remember what I read last, what the last thing I read with Godzilla was. I think we just finished up that trilogy. I think we're moving into something new.
So let's get into this. I mean, Rome, Rome on the range. This sounds like, uh, well, it is. It's a bad pun. I mean, it doesn't just sound like one. It is one. And, uh, you know, you look at the cover and you see Godzilla stepping through some hills, spooking some cattle. There's the word stampede written right on there. There's three terrified cowboys. And so the question becomes, what the heck is this? What What's going on here? And uh, I'm looking at the cover and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm either going to really love this or I'm going to really not. And, uh, you know, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I like weird stuff. I like it when two different genres of weird stuff get mashed together. So looking at the cover, Western with a monster, you know what? I'm in. They've got me in from the beginning. Um, But things like this can also be done poorly. (laughs) So so let's take a look at things here, okay? the story is Doug Bench. The penciler is Herb Trimpey. The anchor is Daniel Green. The letterer, Shelley Letterman. Lefferman. Sorry. And the colorist, Don Warfield. A 17-page story, 35 cents off the spinner rack, and it's edited by Bob Hall. And on sale date for this one, July 4th, 1978. Yeah, you know, it goes on sale July 4th, and then October that cover date is when they're supposed to take it off the shelves. I understand this. I don't care. It's October. This is my birthday month. When I see an October on a comic, it's all about it. It's all about me. You know, that's just the way it is. It's my month out of the 12. And so I'm actually kind of looking at this and it is not October yet, but it's close. And you know, these, these, these issues so far, I mean, I got a good laugh out of the human fly, and the title there, the the big balloons, uh, Star Wars delighted me with the return of Jackson, and the fact that the characters weren't even in it except for a page. So the question is, will this delight me too? Will this be a birthday treat? And specifically, not coming on my birthday, but you know, whatever. Uh, what the heck is this? So let's ask this question. And let me try and describe this to you. What if, what if Jaws had kaiju instead of a shark? What if Jaws were set in the American West instead of on the East Coast? What if Jaws featured corrupt ranchers instead of corrupt politicians? I guess in Jaws they weren't necessarily corrupt, but um, misguided. So corrupt ranchers instead of misguided politicians. What if Jaws featured a whole bunch of cowboys going out on a hunt instead of a whole bunch of fishermen going out on a hunt? The answer might be something similar to this comic. Now, it's not a perfect one-to-one correlation, but I couldn't help but be reminded of Jaws where there's a mystery, something's doing something terrible, turns out it's a creature, and then they send people out to get it. And it's not, I I acknowledge, not perfect. But it's there. It's close. That's why I say the answer might be something similar to this comic. Now, this comic basically has three stories going on in its pages. And uh, one of them 
Story number one has nothing to do with my Jaws analogy, okay? Nothing at all. It's our Marvel characters. It's Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones and Rob and Tamara and Agent Wu. And they're all still recovering from last issue. There's still a big, huge mess in Salt Lake City. And Dum Dum Dugan, he's ordering the National Guard to clean it all up. Now, Rob is just fixated about Red Ronin. Will you fix it, Mr. Dugan? Will you? Will you? Ha, ha, ha. I mean, he's just, he's just constantly, like, like his only dialogue is about Red Ronin. And the National Guard is told to leave it alone. Dum Dum does have plans to get it fixed. And uh, they're going to put it on the behemoth and they're going to transport it back to Stark or whatever. But Rob is just fixated on that repair job as they leave. So it's it's one page. Okay, it's one page of our usual crew, just like Star Wars. One page, one page of our regular crew. And in that one page, Rob is still, he's more super annoying than ever. He was redeeming himself in my eyes. But in just this one page, just a couple panels, just a couple word balloons, he's super annoying. One page of our regular crew, and yet... Here they are, and it doesn't feel right. It feels added on. It feels like it's just a reminder that they exist. <laughs> that doesn't serve any per other purpose. It just is reminding us that they are still alive. They're still there. But it just doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It has no other purpose than that. And it serves its purpose, sure, but it doesn't need to be there. But, yeah, it's just one page. Just like Star Wars, one page where the actual cast of this story, of this comic book series, makes an appearance. Other than Godzilla, obviously. Which is story number two. Story number two is Godzilla's story. And this is what happens in Godzilla's story. Godzilla roams into what appears to be the American West. He's been walking since Salt Lake City. And he finds some bones and he looks at them. And then he's tired and so he's... He just lays down. He did just take a walk from Salt Lake City into wherever they are now. And he takes a nap. The cool night air wakes him up. And he wakes up and starts to go, go along on his merry old way. And he wanders into a herd of cattle. Which, of course, reminds me of the joke. A herd of cattle. A what? A herd of cattle. Of course I heard of cattle. Get it? Huh, never mind. <laughs> and the cattle get spooked and start a stampede. And these things are like bumping into his feet and he gets tired of them. He's kind of going after them. And the, the stampede is going ahead of him. And then more little things attack him. And there's a small expo explosion on his tail. And so he turns and gives chase to the little guys who cause that minor irritation and breathes fire at them and walks into a, a building and destroys it. So that's Godzilla's story. And, you know, par for the course for Godzilla, right? He comes in, he causes a problem, and then he makes it worse by just being who he is, just being big. Uh, but all that said, sounds like there's not much going on there, and there's not as far as what you know Godzilla's narrative goes, but he gets three splash pages, and they're all really good. Uh, the first one is on page one. He's coming up over a hill, and there's a whole bunch of bones spread out on the ground. And then on page three, he's crouched over the bones, examining them, almost like a detective. You know, sitting in the, standing in the street, crouched down, picking up you know bullet shells or something like that, and uh, or bullet casings or whatever. Clearly, I'm I'm not a 
a weapons master of any sort. But um, he's holding a handful of these bones. He's letting them slip out of his hand to the earth. And uh, like I said, he's crouched down. Now in front of him, there's some uh, cowboys. And they're very, very, very tiny on their little horses. Uh, page 11, if you're going by story pages, because that's what I have to do with my Essential Edition. I mean, well, you know, I, I'm saying it's my Essential Edition, but I don't want anyone to realize that I actually have a time machine, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, page 11, it's night. The stampede is at his feet, and they're, you know, running away from him, again, toward cowboys and stuff. Uh, each one of these splash pages, I mean, three of the pages from this book, of three of the 17 story pages, are splash pages of Godzilla, just giving the scale of the creature. I mean, it really sells the scale of Godzilla compared to the bones of the, the cattle, the cowboys on their horses, the herd of cattle stampeding in front of him. And it's, it's really, really quite well done. And, you know, Godzilla still, sometimes I look at him and it just feels natural because I've spent so much time with this, this design. And sometimes I look at him and I feel like I don't even know what I'm, I mean, he just doesn't look like Godzilla. But um, anyway, he, uh, <laughs> speaking of not looking like Godzilla, uh, sleeping Godzilla is actually kind of cute when he falls asleep leaning on the rocks here in, in this issue. And then the other thing just of, of note is that those those huge splash pages are really drawn to sell the size and the scale of him. Some of the smaller panels don't work as well and, and make him look and feel a little bit smaller compared to the other things around him. So that's a minor nitpick. I mean, of an otherwise well, I mean, extremely well-drawn comic book. Story number three uh, is a story of two cowboys, Lefty and Hal. And, and they're out investigating what must be cow wrestlers. Except they come across the bones of the cattle. And then there's also a giant gila monster. It's huge, huge gila monster. And they hurry back to their ranch, which is owned by John Hawks. Hal wants to go to the authorities, but Lefty suggests an idea so idiotic that I I, I just wonder if, um, well, something later on in the story is going to show us that as idiotic as this, this idea is, there's a good reason for giving the idea, let's put it that way. So anyway, his idea is to bring down the giant Gila monster themselves. And John Hawks agrees. He thinks the idea is a great idea. And so that night, under the stars, around the campfire, a group of cowboys are gathered together, getting ready for bedtime. You know, it's, it's that time where they're going to sit down with the guitars and sing about the blue shadows on the range. That's the only thing I can think of is uh, the, the little lullaby that they sing on, on Three Amigos. But anyway, as they're getting ready, to you know, hunker down and, and hit the hay, hit the sack, whatever. Um, they're also getting ready to do the stupidest thing they've ever done in their life the next morning, and yeah. So the idea is stupid until you realize that night Lefty is actually working for Bill Ford, who is another rancher, and this rancher has been stealing John Hawks's cattle and leaving behind cow carcasses cow carcasses and using the, the cover story of cattle mutilations um, mysterious cattle mutilations that's going to be their cover story but Godzilla came along and gave them even better 
a better cover story. Now, for me, reading this, I'm thinking, why is there bones? You know, Godzilla, he would eat them. He'd eat them whole. I mean, if there's going to be bones, it's going to be in his scat. Um, if reptiles or Godzillas have scat. But the bones are going to be in the poop, not going to be something he hacks up like an owl. Uh, anyway, they think this is going to be a good story. People can think that Godzilla killed the cattle. And now we find out why Lefty gave the idea in the first place. Lefty had the idea for them to go after Godzilla because it's going to get all the ranchers out on the other side and away from the high ground over at Box Canyon where they are hiding the rest of the cattle that they themselves have rustled. So that's the plan. Lefty's working with this Ford guy. Godzilla is a convenient scapegoat for their thieving that they're doing. Now, campfire time, meanwhile, is interrupted by a cattle stampede, the one from the cover. And when the stampede comes towards them, they look up, and this is where we get that splash page. They see the giant Gila monster. I'm using finger quotes whenever I say Gila monster. Uh, you can't see them, but just imagine that this guy that you may or may not know what he looks like, but whatever you think I look like, I'm doing the uh, the uh, air quotes with my fingers there. Um, the, it's right behind the stampede, and they have to do two things. First thing, those cows are headed toward a cliff, and when they go over the cliff, they're going to end up in a river, and they're going to drown. So they have to stop their where the direction they're going in. But then they also have to stop the thing that's pushing them that way. Because if they stop, if they go, get in front of the, the, the herd, it's not going to matter as long as the thing is still pushing them that way. So they have two things, and a couple of the cowboys go off to cut them off, and, and a couple other ones go to try and get Godzilla from going in that direction and pushing the herd ahead of him. And if either one of them fail, the herd is going over. The two guys who are going to go and try and turn the course of the herd, they're also going to go over. Uh, really, the guys running towards Godzilla are the safest ones right now. If they succeed, great. If they don't succeed, they have the possibility of, of surviving. And one of those two guys is Hal. And Hal is just every bit the Western hero, man. He figures out a plan uh, in the face. <laughs> I mean, he's realized by now, I hope, that, that Godzilla is not going to be brought down with lassos and stuff like that. No, it's just not going to happen because this thing is huge. But he's going to use his lasso and he's going to throw it and it's going to uh, go onto the tip of the tail. That works. He climbs up tie some dynamite to the tip of the tail, and it explodes. And it would be like a mosquito to us, but the monster, it, it's like a mosquito to him, and he turns around, and just like we would, you know, slat, swat at a mosquito, and might even go after it because we don't want it to bother us again. The monster now is chasing down Hal and the other cowboy, and they ride away toward Hawks's ranch house to try and warn him uh, that Godzilla is on its way. They get there, and just when they're warning hawks the godzilla steps on the, the ranch house so here's some thoughts um first of all john hawks uh there are two filmmakers uh there's john ford and howard hawks and they're both famous western directors and you also have them bill ford and so i'm not sure if john hawks is just supposed to be referencing howard hawks and bill ford is referencing john ford or um if there's actually maybe a, a third director to throw into the mix here but it's definitely referencing these old um classic classic uh film uh western film directors 
the other thing, the uh, one other thing I should say of note is that um, when they're making fun of Hal for what he's seen, they're talking about the wacky weed, and one of them says, "Maybe you, you found one of them Star Trek time warpers and saw a real Dinah Shore," uh, which Dinah Shore is actually a, a musician and television actress from long ago. But but I, I thought it was funny that, that that's the way he says it, Dinah Shore. Uh, let's see what else here uh, for this issue. Um, I simply didn't care about our regular cast. Um, I, I, the story. This is a story about Godzilla and cowboys, and on the face of it, it shouldn't work. It's too goofy, maybe, and it's not. It doesn't go into the heaviest realm of what the cheesiness could be, but it goes just far enough for me. I'm enjoying myself, but. I don't care about this interruption with uh, Dum Dum Dugan and Gabe Jones. I understand they have to be there because if they weren't, that'd be you know you you go from you'll go for two months without seeing them, possibly possibly three months if if both of these issues are just Western stuff and and uh, Shield doesn't figure in to the next issue. But just didn't care, just didn't care. Uh, Lefty's idea. Uh, this is the other big thing for me to catch big g that's stupid okay that's just a stupid idea and i understand that he has is giving the idea to um you know he doesn't plan to actually catch godzilla that's that's not at all what his plan is he's trying to sell people on this idea because it helps his other purposes he's working at cross purposes which is good storytelling working at cross purposes with each other having you know characters who know more than other characters or know something different but it's stupid it's a stupid idea, and they accept it so easily. They should have never accepted it, especially if Godzilla is anywhere close to as big as they think he might be. Just dumb, dumb idea. I think maybe a better idea would just be to try and say, you guys should be out with the herd. You know, you should be out with the herd or something. I don't know. We'll find out next issue if there's anything more with that. And Maybe there's a reason why he needed them to be so far away. Uh, with the herd instead of out with the, you know in the normal places that they might be I don't know but I can't believe that they did that and the other thing I, just to mention is I really really enjoyed this mismatch of genres uh, I felt it would I, I felt it worked pretty well but I, it, it probably would have worked better if it was a smaller monster not Godzilla uh, but it is what it is it's Godzilla and it's a western a comic book western and I enjoyed that so it was fun. It was a lot of fun. And it concludes next issue. So we're just continuing this month of weird. Star Wars got a bit weird. Human Fly had the goofy title that I laughed at and was weird because it's so mundane. Instead of, I mean, it wasn't weird because it's weird. It was just weird because it was just kind of a... Didn't even try to do anything um, big or special or different or oddball. And Godzilla was weird because of the genre max, uh, matchup. And the next thing I'm going to talk about in the next segment, it's Marvel Team-Up featuring Spider-Man, and it fits in to the month of weird. Now, when I get to John Carter, I'm not sure. But looking at the cover, I mean, I'm just going to get into it next segment. But it is definitely worthy of being part of this weird cover date October 1978 month. So, so glad I stepped into my time machine to, to do this. This was one of those little surprises that I got uh, as I'm going through my, my, my trips in time and go back. And I'm looking on the shelf, looking for things that are 
licensed by Marvel to be published by Marvel, but they weren't originally created by Marvel. Now, this has included the Human Fly, who was a real-life stuntman. This has included John Carter, Warlord of Mars, from a book series. This has included Star Wars. In fact, this was inspired by Star Wars, uh, because that's what got me to do this whole podcast thing in the first place with this particular project, this experiment, if you might call it. Although, after 91 episodes, I don't think it's an experiment anymore. <laughs> I think it's it's gone beyond experiment. Uh, that's, that's right, 91 chapters of Marvel's comic, com- Cosmic Comics. Now, if you're listening to this in the omnibus, it's not that many episodes, but it is that many segments as of right now. There's been 91 different segments, which means I've covered more than 91 comics, which, um, I don't know, that says something about uh, determination and weird organization, I think is what it, what it is testament to in my life. In this case, this is one of those, like I said, weird surprises where as I'm looking to see what's in each month, uh, I have a good idea of what's coming up, but I never know exactly when. And this was one that I hadn't even put in my box, but as I was looking to see what else is out there, I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. I do that every month, and usually I haven't missed anything. I, I've usually, the things that I want to be in the comic book protective sleeve that I store them in, uh, that's right. They're all jammed into single sleeves. So each month, yeah, not single sleeve per comic. It's a single sleeve per month. So there's some pretty tight months coming up. These months lately haven't been that tight, though. So anyway, this was one that I hadn't put in the sleeve, and I, I didn't know it was coming up. And I looked through, and I thought, wait a minute. As I was looking at the covers on Mike's Amazing World of Comics, that's... That's the Marvel team-up with John Belushi on the cover. That's the Marvel team-up with Saturday Night Live, the cast of Saturday Night Live. Not only, wait a minute, that's there. I own that. I have that somewhere. Not only do I have that somewhere, I just saw it as I was sorting through some of my comics. It was put away with um, some of my other uh, gimmick comics, you know, where you have Marvel team-up with Aunt May or whatever, or uh, Obnoxio the Clown, um things like that, and I knew exactly where it was, which is unusual right now. Anything that's not, like, just purposefully put somewhere, they've been moved around so much. I don't know where things are now where I know I have an issue, but it might be in here, it might be over there, this closet, that closet. I'm not very organized right now with things that have just been forgotten, so to speak. Well, this is one that I actually knew where it was, so I pulled it out, and... I mean, uh, <laughs> don't listen to all that. I mean, I went back in time. Uh, yeah, that's it. I went back in time to 1978, and this was on the on the shelf. So anyway, yes, Saturday Night Live itself is not a sci-fi property or a fantasy license. However, it is a license. They did have to license it. They were using copyrighted material, and they had permission to do so. And... It's got Spider-Man and Silver Samurai in it, so therefore that makes it sci-fi and fantasy. And so now I have justified it enough to make it work, uh, in my mind anyway. So (laughs) this is what we get. We have a comic book guest starring the Saturday Night Live cast. Now this cast is not the cast that I'm familiar with when I was watching Saturday Night Live, except for reruns that would pop up every once in a while. These were ones that I knew of because they were famous, 
But, you know, when I was into Saturday Night Live, it was it was Chris Farley. It was Dennis Miller. It was Kevin Nealon. It was uh, that gang, so to speak. It was Norm MacDonald. You know, it was it was those guys. It was uh, late 80s and then early and mid 90s. And I followed it for a while after that. But I haven't watched Saturday Night Live in a very, very long time. Mainly because I have a job that I have to get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. No, I have to get up at 5.30 in the morning on Sunday morning so that I can be out the door by 6.30 in the morning on Sunday morning. And staying up to watch Saturday Night Live from 11.30 to midnight. No, 11.30 to 1, actually. It's just not going to happen. I do remember my first Saturday Night Live. I was babysitting the kids next door. And I got to stay up and watch uh, TV. And, and I... I watched Saturday Night Live. Now, I had heard of Saturday Night Live, and I had heard of some of the characters and stuff that had come out of it, uh, but I had never actually watched it. I had friends who would come to school on Monday, and they would talk all about how they saw Saturday Night Live, and I was so jealous when some friends came home one, one or came to school one Monday and said they had seen William Shatner doing Saturday Night Live. I'm just, oh, man. I, I, was, I was devastated. Not really, but upset. Nah, bothered. I was bothered. Uh, so these characters here, though, these actors, I mean, this crew, it's Dan Aykroyd. It's John Belushi. I mean, it's the Blues Brothers right there. It's Jane Curtin. It's Garrett Morris, who played Ant-Man in a sketch. Uh, we'll get to that sketch. It's Bill Murray. It's Lorraine Newman. Gilda Radner. Oh, man. She, she would crack me up in those... Um, uh, weekend update reruns that I would see. Uh, and then also Lorne Michaels, who is the producer of Saturday Night Live. And then another guest star in here from real life is Stan Lee himself. And it's they're all on the cover. They're all on the cover. I wish I could find more historical information about where this issue came from, how it came to be, and how the cast of Saturday Night Live responded to it. Because it's not that they weren't, you know, they didn't know about comic books. There were some sketches, there's some very famous Saturday Night Live sketches where they are doing the the superhero thing. Uh, The most famous one... um, from at least from this era is when, like I said, uh, Garrett Morris played Ant Man, and you had um, Belushi playing Hulk, and you had some other superheroes in there as well. And it's it's cute, it's fun, it's funny. Um, there's this line. Well, I mean, the best part is when Belushi ends up in the bathroom. They're all waiting for him. Hulk comes out. It's like, don't go in there. And it's it's funny. It's it's scatological, sure, but but it's funny stuff. And so. They've had their run-ins with superheroes, and I, I really want to know what is if there's a connection between that sketch and this comic. In fact, at first, I wondered if they did this comic because you know someone at Marvel saw that they did the superhero sketch, and then they did this. But this came out in 78. It was on the shelves in July of 1978. And that superhero sketch that I'm talking about, the um, superhero uh Superhero Party, um, let's see here, what they call it? Su- yeah, Superhero Party is what I see in a, uh, some of the listings here. It's Margot Kidder, who is, of course, um, Lois Lane, uh, and Bill Murray playing Superman. And 
it was from 1979. So that makes it difficult you know, to, to inspire the comic book, unless there's some time travel going on. And, you know, I'm doing the time travel here, not them. So they... I don't know what came first. I don't know if, like, Stan Lee or some of the bullpen went to a taping or something like that, and, you know, they recognize, hey, Stan Lee, or maybe Stan Lee, you, you, he was getting into the, um, uh, the, the you know, other arms of entertainment. I, I, I don't know. A brief look at Marvel Comics' The Untold Story brings up nothing about um, Saturday Night Live. It, it may be in there. I just couldn't find anything in the index. But uh, then looking under Belushi in the index... It doesn't bring up John Belushi. It brings up Jim Belushi, uh, John Belushi's brother. And this isn't something I have to find this. I wish there was a way to go back in time. I don't know. But um, it goes. It's, it's a chapter that has to do with uh, Steve Gerber and that there was a Howard the Duck radio program. Yes, a Howard the Duck radio program. Now, I know there was a... Uh, a Fantastic Four radio program. And that radio program actually then, back to Saturday Night Live, had Bill Murray in it playing uh, Johnny Storm, I believe. Now, I haven't been able to find anything about this Howard the Duck radio program with Jim Belushi. I have seen, however, a photograph of Jim Belushi in the recording studio recording it. I so this is something that uh, there's this whole October 1978 and cover date birth month thing. I'm really enjoying some of the things I'm uncovering and some of the things I'm I'm reading and and uh, this Howard the Duck radio thing, man. I am so curious about that. So curious, but I couldn't find anything uh, as far as any recordings or anything like that. So anyway. Back to the comic at hand here, which is uh, just to show that there is a lot of connections with Saturday Night Live from Marvel, least of which being that they're in New York. But uh, this is a comic book that features them now. And so here's the thing. I, I, I mention that because it's very obvious, but I mention it because whenever you have something like this, this kind of a crossover, there's a very real danger and that's this. When a character, like a funny character from one show, is brought into another show, is he going to be funny enough? Is he going to be funny as he was over there? Especially in something like this, where you have these comedian characters who are putting on a live comedy show. Is it going to be funny? Is it going to be as good as the real thing as you're watching the fake thing or reading, in this case, the fake thing? And that was the question I kept asking myself. I do not remember reading this, but I'm positive that I have. Uh, this is one that did not just get bought and then put away. I'm pretty sure that I read this, but if I did read it, it would have been you know 15 years ago maybe. And so I didn't remember exactly how everything panned out in the comic, and I didn't remember having an impression of it being terrible, nor did I have an impression of it being wonderful. So that also gave me a little bit of fear. Was this going to drop somewhere in the middle? Now, the story is simple enough. The story is, 
a classic Spider-Man story. Um, he has a date with Mary Jane. Something goes wrong. There's a bad guy involved, and he teams up with some heroes or a hero. I mean, this is Marvel team-up, right? So here's the details. Peter and Mary Jane are on a date, but the date is to the Saturday Night Live broadcast, and they are late. And that's going to put them in the balcony. And Mary Jane is not too happy about that. She wanted a better seat. They went out to eat, but then they did you know they ran into traffic or whatever. They're not able to get in as early as they were expecting. Mary Jane, not happy. You know who else is not happy? Silver Samurai. He's not happy. He's not happy because he wants something. And we'll get into what it is that he wants, but right now it's just good enough to know he's not happy and his wrath his anger, his unhappiness is focused on um, the, the the Saturday Night Live taping. Someone else who's not too happy. That's Jim, not John Belushi. John Belushi, not Jim Belushi. John Belushi is not happy because he got a package from a fan that had a ring in it and he put it on and now he can't get it off and they're getting ready to do the show. Now, that package that came to him, well, that's what Silver Samurai wants to get. That's what's making him not happy is that one, someone in that building has the ring. But it was supposed to be delivered to someone else. So, that causes Silver Samurai and his goons to do some bad guy type stuff, like take Lorne Michaels hostage in the producing room. And so... Peter has to leave, become Spider-Man, and leave Mary Jane behind, leaving her next to a handsome young man who was giving Mary Jane some attention, and she just might be interested in him, especially considering how unhappy she is with Peter in that evening. So it's all connected. And like all stories that are well-written are, they're going to be connected. They're going to have all these things, and they're going to be seem like they're all from different places, but they're all going to come together. Well-written stories do that. You know what else does that? Stories that aren't too well-written, but <laughs> that will decide what we're getting into here later on. Anyway, Silver Samurai is looking through the you know backstage. He's going through the cast members of Saturday Night Live. And now, the episode, by the way, is being hosted by Stan Lee, naturally, and uh, the musical guest is Rick Jones. So there's that. Um, and, you know, this is yet just another one of those times when Stan Lee makes his cameo. And he was doing cameos long before the MCU. So as Silver Samurai is doing that, Spider-Man is investigating because he's seeing these people. His Basically, his spider sense and his common sense are both warning him about people who are up to no good because he actually sees people who are up to no good but are they actors no they're probably not actors not it's not part of the show because my spider sense is is tingling and meanwhile the cast of saturday night live have their show that they have to put on even while lauren michaels the producer has been taken hostage shenanigans ensue all right and so there's there's a lot of things that go on here but here's here's some of the highlights and that's that bill murray knocks out a guy with a fake mjolnir and then dresses up as the guy to see what the bad guys are up to. Um, Spider-Man saves him, of course. Silver Samurai interrupts Weekend Update by bringing Gilda Radner and Jane Curtin through trap doors. And then Spider-Man uses his webbing to get them back up there because we got to keep the show going. We don't want people to think something's going wrong. 
Belushi is clueless to all of this, but he's ready for the next sketch. And the next sketch is his samurai character. Yeah, so that's kind of, I think, the point of this whole thing is, I mean, it gives us a great cover of Belushi with his samurai sword, and he's getting ready, he's giving a, a, a samurai yell, and uh, there's silver hands holding another sword that, that they're all looking at. And actually, the perspective of the cover is from us, the viewer. The way the hands are, it's one of those where it's a second-person cover. I'm not sure if that's an official title for that, but that's what I'm calling it. Uh, it's Dave Cochran and, and Marie Severin who did this, and it's it's pretty good. But it's one of those where it's as if we are in the position of the camera and all of the people on the cover are looking at us. And uh, Spider-Man is yelling, Belushi, no, that samurai's for real. And he's giving his, his samurai yell as Spider-Man is trying to warn him off. So anyway, I think that this is the whole point, uh, was to get the two samurai characters together. I think maybe when Chris Claremont was given the assignment, and I imagine that this came as an assignment. I don't, I don't think this would have, again, this is all my imagination right now. I don't think this came as Chris Claremont saying, I have a great idea. I'd love to do something with the Saturday Night Live gang. I think this was some sort of promotional item. I mean, we've got, uh, in the little, um, character box in the upper left corner, right under where it says still only 35 cents, there's Spider-Man's head and there's Stan Lee's head, which is what would normally be there for a Marvel team-up. And then underneath Stan Lee's head is the NBC N. And so it's, it's, it's licensed. This is a promotional item. This is something they did on purpose and not just, I think, on a whim, but I think as some sort of um, publicity kind of gimmick thing. And I, again, I'm curious how well, how well it worked. So the whole point though, is to bring us to Samurai versus Samurai. Now, meanwhile, while all that is going on as Spider-Man and the cast members, the other cast members start realizing kind of what the bad guys are up to. They decide that the bad guys seem to be nervous about the Avengers, the actual Avengers coming. And so they're going to keep these bad guys on their toes, keep them, um, off balance. And so Spider-Man and the cast, then uh, Spider-Man is already dressed as a superhero, but they get the cast dressed as superheroes. Lorraine Newman dresses up as Ms. Marvel, which is a Chris Claremont connection. Uh, by the way, I, I don't think I mentioned the, the credits here. The writer is Chris Claremont. And the uh, artist is Bob Hall, who was the editor of uh, the... Godzilla thing recently, I think. Uh, he, but he's he's the penciler and editor on this. Uh, Marie Severin is the inker. Um, Annette Kawaki, Kawaki is the letterer. And Marie Severin is also the colorist. Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. And, oh, another thing I forgot to mention. We get a nice, great big double-page splash, and Statler and Waldorf are on there. So, uh, but they don't really even give a real good dig. It just says, will you two kindly sit down? Statler and I came here to see the show. That's telling Waldorf, you old coot. That's not funny. You know, Statler and Waldorf show up. They should be giving some sort of commentary on the show, not commentary on Peter Parker needing to sit down. Unless, you know, you can do both easily, but they didn't. Now, that's getting some of the analysis stuff that we're going to save for after we're, we're, we're done with the plot here, but... So you got Lorraine Newman in the Ms. Marvel suit, which is a, another uh, Chris Claremont joint, so to speak. And then you have um, uh, 
<laughs> Garrett Morris uh, dress up as Thor, uh, which is one of the things when the crooks come and see him, they get kind of what's going on here because Thor is Norwegian and white. And so it's kind of funny because it goes, goes back to that Idris Elba uh, big old controversy, I guess, when they did the first Thor movie and, um, you know, well, the Norwegians, they, they, they can't, they, they're all white. You know, the, he can't play a Norwegian uh, god. And, um, and but Garrett Morris, he, he sells it, you know, and he sells it partially because then he's wearing rubberized boots and they zap electricity through the metal um, of the, like the, the walkway that they're on right there. And uh, that's pretty dangerous for civilians to do but it's what they do and it, do, it does the job oh and then uh <laughs> then dan hackray gets in some weird costume with a uh handlebar mustache and it looks like some sort of russian soldier thing from uh you know the 1900s with the pogroms and stuff like that and that's that's getting close i i know just enough about history to be able to recognize he looks kind of like something that i might have seen so all that shenanigans it works it does the job, it keeps them off balance, and the, the, the gang, the crooks that are helping Silver Samurai, they're taken care of. Silver Samurai is not, and Silver Samurai finally finds Belushi, finally finds the guy who has the ring, because that's the reason he was like bringing Jane Curtin and um, Gilda Ratner down, is because he's checking them to see if they have the rings. He finally finds Belushi, finally sees the ring. They fight, swords go back and forth, a little bit of fighting, and then um, it just ends up as a tug of war between Silver Samurai and Belushi, and it ends with Silver Samurai winning the tug of war, getting the ring off as Spider-Man comes in and helps. Uh, And then he puts the ring on and teleports away because that's what the ring does. And we find out that it was meant for another guy in the building named J.B. Lushi. I think it's meant to sound uh, Asian because Silver Samurai was coming and, and that kind of thing. So uh, it ends, uh, the, the final page, after Silver Samurai goes away, it ends with that then cast photo with uh, Belushi and, and all the other people and Stan Lee. Uh, and it's just this one panel of them all standing in a line and then talking. And then the final two panels are in this kind of cafe where Belushi and Garrett Morris are debriefing uh, the, the evening, I guess. And Peter Parker and Mary Jane are as well. We find out that Mary Jane is upset because the man that she was kind of interested in who was showing her attention um, gave her some sort of, uh, let's say he gave her a undefined indecent proposal. Let's, let's go with that. So uh, she's unhappy because she didn't get to have her vengeance uh, against Parker for the ruined evening. And they're, they're back together. So, uh, there's a, there's a handful of things to talk about here. One of the things that's really kind of interesting is Silver Samurai gets really indignant about, uh, Belushi's samurai character. And, you know, the kind of, this is one of those where you have that cultural appropriation, appropriation, uh, cultural appropriation going on where you have someone from another culture, another race who is donning the clothing and the styling and the sound uh, of of something from from another culture, and uh, Silver Samurai is is upset uh, about Belushi doing this, which is kind of interesting, and and then 
I mean, just talking about that climax, it is really, I guess, anticlimactic is probably the best way to put it. I mean, there's no real victory for the good guys. The bad guy gets what he wants and gets away. And the only victory that I really see here is the <laughs> the um, rival for Peter Parker's affection. No, Mary Jane's affection. The rival for Mary Jane uh, is defeated by his own well, whatever it is that he was suggesting. And the, the the audience thinks that everything that was happening was some sort of slapstick show, a slapstick comedy show, and it was all part of the show. And so everything turns out okay in the end, but the good guys don't win. And that's it just it kind of falls flat. It just all falls flat. And that's actually probably what I would say about this whole thing. It's just kind of flat. Uh, it's It's not that funny. Uh, Stan Lee's monologue at the beginning is not funny. Now, it has uh, Lorne Michaels thinking, wow, this guy's good, but he's not great. But he's not. He's not funny. And it ends on a really stupid joke, a really stupid joke. Um, Belushi is saying, okay, he's he's talking to Garrett Morris, and he says, anyway, the police figure the ring was meant to go to some import-export hotshot named J.B. Lushi, who has offices at 30 Rock, just like NBC. But the address label got rained on, the ink smeared, and some postal clerk figured it was meant for me. And then Garrett Morris says, hey man, everything turned out fine. Why look so glum? And Belushi says, I don't know, Garrett. I keep looking at this ball of web glop and thinking about Spider-Man. And I keep asking myself the same question. And uh, Garrett Morris has this really, um, not concerned look, but I, I don't know how, how to call it. But he, he says, well, here it comes. And Belushi says, what are we going to do for the spin-off? Because it's, you know, spiders spin webs. And they're on TV. And you do spin-offs of TV shows. And it's just not funny. I mean, we're ending on that as the punchline. Now, I'm not saying I could write better. I'm not saying that, you know, under the constraints that Chris Claremont was working under, that he could have done better i mean maybe he just had to spit something out real quick as they were you know preparing this or something but stan lee's monologue is is not great let me, let me kind of grab that here he's talking about how he is actually the, the publisher of marvel comics in the marvel universe and he says here it is right here he says hi yeah true believers i can't tell you how pleased i am to be hosting saturday night live for those of you who have been living in siberia siberia the last few years I'm the guy who runs Marvel Comics. Now, a lot of people think that's really neat. <laughs> that's where Lorne Michael says, not bad. No Steve Martin, but not bad. And then he continues, but have you ever tried getting through a story conference with The Thing? Ah, uh, deep down, Ben Grimm's really a nice guy. I saw him on the street the other day, and I said, Ben, how are you? And he said, not too good. In fact, I'm feeling a little rocky. That's the joke. That's... That's his opening monologue. It's not great. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't... This is like I said. I mean, they're doing the fake Saturday Night Live, and it's just not as good as the real Saturday Night Live. And that's not unusual to have a show about a show, and the show within the show isn't that great. But I, I just wish that this had been a, a little bit better. Uh, just at least have a real joke in there, you know? But then again... I'm not a comedy writer. I write comics, but I'm not a comic. You know what I mean? 
So, all things considered, this was fun, a fun, you know, pull from from my other boxes to put into this, and I, I hope you had fun listening about it. If you've read this before, let me know what you think. Let me know if you enjoy it. Um, maybe I'm missing something, but uh, this is not as funny as a typical Saturday Night Live from that era would have been. I have seen some Saturday Night Live episodes from after that era that are just about as funny as this comic, which means not funny at all. But overall, it was kind of fun to see. Oh, I will say the the uh, uh, the Gilda Radner monologue that she does on uh, the Weekend Update, that actually was kind of funny. That's where she's talking about, now what's all this I hear about violets on television? The violet is a nice little flower. And that's fun stuff. Um, as far as the artwork goes, it's pretty good. The real-life characters tend to look like caricatures. Uh, they tend to look like something maybe from a Mad Magazine or, or Cracked Magazine or something like that. But they work. You know who each person is when you see them. Peter Parker looks the way he looks in comics. But these characters, the real-life characters, you, you know who they are if you've if you're familiar with them. So... That's it for this one, and I think it's time for our final uh, regular comic segment for the October cover date, and that would be John Carter, Warlord of Mars. This issue is the second issue of the new team. Marv Wolfman, he's gone. Uh, He is not writing this anymore. Um, Carmine Infantino, he is gone. He is not the artist on this anymore. Uh, Rudy Nebrez, he is gone, kind of. Uh, he's still doing inks on the covers, but he's not doing any of the interior inks. And it's different. This is a whole new series. The Marv Wolfman era is one thing in and of itself. And it is a very, very good thing. And based on what I've read about half of the, the, the omnibus volume that I have of John Carter, Warlord of Mars, the Marv Wolfman stuff makes it worth the purchase. The question is, will the other stuff, the back half of the series, is that worth the purchase as well? Well, we have the Chris Claremont era. I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how long he's going to be on this, but he has done the last two issues as writer. Ernie Colon has done the last two issues as penciler. Bob Layton is the inker of this issue. Rudy Nebrez was the inker of the previous issue. Uh, and so he, Rudy Nebrez, like I said, was kind of the holdover from that, that previous team. Um, Costanza's letters and um, uh, let's see who, who this person is that did the, the color. Uh, Bob Sharon is the colorist. Uh, Roger Stern is editor. Jim Shooter is editor-in-chief. And, uh, but the cover, I mean, if we want to start at the cover, looks fantastic. It's Gil Kane. It's Rudy Nebrez. Uh, Gil Kane is the penciler. Rudy Nebrez, the, the inker. And the cover looks like what's come before. It has just that vital, uh, aura of danger and of passion and of anger and of strength. I mean, John Carter, he's lean, but he is not a huge He-Man type of guy. Uh, when I say a huge He-Man type of guy, I mean He-Man in the Masters of the Universe, not He-Man in the, the most, the more general uh, terms. 
And they're surrounded by these ghostly, ghastly-looking creatures with wings and glowing eyes and um, silhouettes. So they're not, you know, you can't really make out any details except for one hand. Hell, uh, the, well, actually, the arm goes along the side, but the hand is holding a sword. And uh, it just looks like they're about to be attacked by some demonic or, at, at the very least, just vile, evil creatures. And it says, trapped by the savage Orivars. And then it says uh, on the cover, What Price Victory, which is the title inside uh, as well of, of this chapter. And then you turn and you look at the opening splash page. And any, any effect that, that cover had, any effect that, that cover had is instantly just canceled. Just canceled this opening splash page i mean i don't want to maybe i i do want to bury the lead no i'm not gonna bury the lead i'm gonna just go i'm just gonna go there right now this opening splash page is the pits man it is not great it is not great at all okay i don't like speaking bad about people um i don't like speaking bad about creators and, and creative people uh this I don't know what you can blame this on if Ernie Colon just doesn't have a handle on things or if this is just a rush job or, and this is quite possible, Bob Layton was having a difficult time interpreting Ernie Colon's pencils and it just is not a good mix. I mean, Ernie Colon, he's one of those people that he he is a long time, long time worker in comics and he, you know, he, he has a, a well-known name for good reason. I mean, he has done a lot of different things for Marvel and DC. Uh, you know, just looking quickly through his credits, um, he's done. He was he was doing Eric Son of Thunder. He did stuff for Gold Key with Doctor Solar, and he did Amethyst, uh, Princess of Gem World, uh, and these are all things that things that I'm familiar with that are really really well done. Uh, there are lots of other things that I'm not familiar with, but um, he did Bullwinkle and Rocky. That's a surprise to me. Um, he worked on Underworld, which is a comic about um, police officers from the late 80s, and uh, Power Pack, Mighty Mouse, uh, Dreadstar. I mean, he, he's done a lot of things, a lot of things, and he's done them well. And so I, when I complain here about the art, I, I'm saying these things, but... This can't be representative of Ernie Colon's uh, talent and, and skill level. Bob Layton, on the other hand, he is someone who I really admire as an artist. And this is earlier in his career than the stuff that I'm familiar with that he did. But this just, oh, the, the facial expressions on these characters looks, some of them, they don't evoke any emotion in me when I look at them. I mean, one is supposed to be just, I think fearful and terrible, but it's just laughable. And just the way that the bodies are contorting and uh, the hair or whatever, or headdresses of these creatures. The last issue ended on these characters, uh, Deja Thoris and, and John Carter. There's these weird shadow beings coming toward them. And it's it's moody, it's effective, but then... You turn the page in my omnibus here, and by omnibus, I mean the omnibus that I use as a time machine. Actually, that'd be a great 
time machine vehicle, the omnibus. Wow. Maybe that's what our time machine is called for the comic book time machine. Anyway, you turn the page and it's just like we, we went from this really kind of moody panel into this ridiculous, goofy panel where John Carter leaps into action and he elbows this one warrior in the throat and it just looks goofy. It just, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't. Now, there are some panels that do work. There are some panels, especially, I mean, you, you, <laughs> not to uh, cast aspersions, but um, the panels of Dejah Thoris's body uh, seem to have a lot more time and attention spent on the anatomy and making sure that the you know all the foreshortening works uh, you know of the limbs and uh, you know that the uh, proportions of the anatomy are all you know in proportion but uh, you know like when I'm talking about the arms and the, and the legs and that kind of thing but then the men the male characters they just don't they just don't unless it's a very simple panel uh, there's some odd panels where you just can't even tell you know what body part belongs to what person you know there's this fight scene on one of the pages where they're attacking John Carter and you can't tell whose arms are whose and it just but looking at it, I just can't help thinking that it's possibly uh, a disconnect between Bob Layton and Ernie Colon. I'm hoping, and I think that's the benefit of the doubt that I'm going to give to this, but it just it just dampens the whole mood of the story for me. And the story's not that bad. Uh, now, I'm surprised to see that uh, those creatures in that shadowy panel are actually <laughs> angels. I mean, that's really what they look like. They all have white wings. They all wear no shirts, but they all have very fit bodies, uh, very strong bodies. And it it just feels like, I, and I, I believe once you get into the story, that that's what they are supposed to look like. I think that the angel imagery is meant to be what we think of when we look at these creatures. John Carter fights these, these uh, people, and he's defeated. Now, this is unusual, somewhat. He is very strong, but the effects of the poisoning from last issue, the drugs that rendered him to be presumed dead, and he woke up in the tomb last issue after he had been buried because they thought he was dead, those drugs are still affecting him. And so he is defeated. He is knocked unconscious. And he wakes up, and he's lying in a bed in this palace. And he doesn't know where he is. He sees a slave woman. Uh, she sees him, and then she runs away. And so he wanders around and finds some clothes, because he was basically in, a, in his swimsuit. And uh, he puts on a, a belt, and and uh, he doesn't have his, his harness that he can wear. But he's looking around for the master of the palace. As he wanders around, he is surprised to meet a man who has white skin like his own. Now, we've already seen the angel people uh, who had white skin like him, but, you know, that's unusual here on Mars. He is the only one who has uh, typical white skin that you would have from a Caucasian person here on Earth. Everyone else has these um, very bright, different colors, you know, like the the green Martians and the red Martians and all that kind of stuff. Dejah Thoris being one of the reds. So he meets Garthan of Karanthor. 
all right, who welcomes John Carter, says he's a friend, gives uh, gives him a harness to wear uh, on his chest and back. And so now John Carter once more looks a lot more regal and a lot more John Carter-ish. He's got swashbuckling boots. He's got the harness. He's got the, I don't know what you call it, where it has the cloth hanging in the front, the cloth hanging in the back. But he's got that again as well. And that's going to make him look appropriately swashbuckling as he is moving around, even as he's just walking around. So he's got his clothing, and he also has a warning from Garthon. If you value Deja Thoris's life, don't let anyone know she's your wife. And then he slips away. No, not not John Carter. Um, the the uh, the guy Car Garthon. Sorry, Car Garthon. Garthon slips away, but then John Carter turns around, and there is another of these people. And this is Gar Karas, Jedwar of the armies of Karanthor. And this guy is, based on the the panel here, this guy is like 16 feet tall, maybe maybe 14, maybe 18. I'm not sure what he's meant to be, but his body proportions he he looks like a He-Man character. <laughs> he really really does. He looks like he could have been molded out of plastic and. He just has straighter arms and straighter legs than the He-Man action figures had. But this guy also kind of counts John Carter as a friend. And he then takes John Carter to a, a banquet. And we find out that Dejah Thoris is actually in the slave pens. And so J- John Carter goes to the this feast with all the other winged warriors of Karin Thor. And John Carter sits with them and tells his story. But he's not believed. He's not believed. And here's why. Uh, I'm going to read some of this stuff because this page here has a lot, a lot of, of uh, exposition. Now, we do see another, uh, some, some more slaves, I should say. And they are all women who have uh, red skin like Deja Thoris. And so John Carter says, you don't believe me, do you? And uh, uh, Gar, <laughs> these names, uh, Gar Carthan. No, Garcaris. Garcaris says, Our beliefs tell us that this great canyon is all that exists of Barsoom, that the cliffs hold up the sky, and that beyond them lies non-existence or hell. And so we have this kind of heaven place, and I think it's meant to feel like this is a, a place that is cut off from the rest of Barsoom. And so then, um, as he's eating, he's <laughs> Gar Karis says, You pose something of a problem, my friend. Your skin is white, which marks you as one of the trueborn, as does your great strength. Yet you are wingless and small in stature, like our red skinned slaves. John Carter then says, You speak of the red skinned people with such contempt, Gar Karis. Why? And the answer is, you, They are an inferior race, cast down from the heavens. To serve the trueborn, the men with their backs, the women with their other charms. It is no less than they deserve. Ten of their strongest men cannot equal the fighting prowess of one winged warrior. John Carter says uh, in the narration, that not, not out loud, but in narration, says, I had heard such sentiments before on a friend's plantation in Virginia. 
before the ill-fated war of secession. I did not like them then. I do not like them now. So then we find out that um, Gar Karis is going to give John Carter uh, all the privileges and rights that he gives any guest as of now. And they've been summoned to the Jeddak's palace. Now, the Jeddak is like the king, like the, the ruler. Uh, it's a Barsoom word. Uh, Deja Thoris is actually, you know, she is the daughter of, of a line of, of Jeddak's. And so they are going there. And then you turn the page and there's a splash page. And it is an awesome, awesome splash page. It's a simple splash page. But here, you know, you think we're in the, you know, this, like above on, a, on some sort of high Olympic mountain, Olympus type mountain. And it turns out that we are in just this huge canyon cavern kind of thing. The cavern is so big that there are mountains below that actually have uh, clouds. But then there are mountain-sized stalactites that are hanging, or stalagmites, whichever. I can't remember which one is the kind that hangs. But they are actually, you know, the same size as those mountains. And then they have these uh, walkways that go from stalagmite or stalactite to stalagmite or stalactite, whichever is which. Um, And it's just this enormous, gigantic cavern and so i'm not sure based on the art if the sky that he was talking about is actually the stone uh ceiling of this cavern or if they do have some access to the actual sky outside because they do show blue skies outside the windows of the buildings but that might just be a a continuity error with the coloring or something but it's a really cool place and so there's some cool stuff going on here. You've got this civilization, this mystery of this civilization of people who have white skin, like earth people with white skin, but they also have wings and, and some of them are giants and others of them are not, but they're all very, very strong, like John Carter, which would explain also why he, they are able to take him down. It's like when Superman fought, you know, other Kryptonians and Superman too. I mean, they all had the same power as him. And so, you know, maybe one-on-one he could take them down, but it'd still be an even fight. And and that's a kind of a similar situation here. And you add to that that he's still suffering from the effects of the drugs. Now, the Jeddak is a jerk, and they, they make that pretty clear early on, just the way he looks, his face, and the way he kind of laughs at John Carter. And then we find out that they've been summoned to come to a an auction, and this auction is, of course, for Deja Thoris. And that's a problem. <laughs> because, as you know, everything John Carter does, he does for her. And so the bidding starts. And John Carter is told, you know, be careful. Uh, don't worry. And, you know, he, you know, there's, there's a classic line, while we lived, we had hope at least. But uh, as as much as the bidding is going up, because she is very dignified, and she stands there very proud, and everyone is bidding on her. People are bidding entire fortunes on her, their entire household's wealth. They're bidding it on Deja Thoris because she's just that incredible. But then the slave master tears her cloak away, leaving her in just um, basically the bikini bottom uh, or... Uh, 
you know, underwear, I guess. But, you know, she's just there exposed for everyone. It says the crowd goes crazy, goes mad. And John Carter is about to go mad. But uh, his friend, Gar Karras, uh, puts his hand on John Carter's shoulder and says, be calm. I will save your woman. Just be calm. And, and so the, they're bidding this tanpi kind of thing. And already people have bid entire fortunes. Garkaris bids 1 million tanpi. And the bidding keeps going and keeps going. It comes down be- between Garkaris and the second in command of the army, Kandar. And Garkaris wins 20 million tanpi, which it's described in here as saying a man could build a fair sized navy for less. John Carter is relieved, but Kandar is not happy. Challenges John Carter to a battle. And John Carter wins the battle. Even though the winged warrior flies him up to the heights of the building, uh, John Carter is unarmed, <laughs> but of course he's going to win. And uh, he is he wins by just taking the guy's dagger and, and stabbing him on their way as they fly toward the, the ground. And then he uses, uh, looks like he uses uh, Kandar's body to cushion the, the fall or something. I don't know. But um, John Carter, he, he wins, of course. And now, because he has won this, he wins the rank and the possessions of the vanquished. And so he is now second in command of the forces of Karanthar. Karanthor or whatever. So he has won that. But what price victory? Remember the title? The price is Deja Thoris. The Jeddak, and the way that uh, Gar Karas explains it to uh, John Carter is Chan Tomar decided that Deja Thoris must be an exceptional woman to merit such a champion as you. He felt an exceptional woman deserved an exceptional man. Him. Forget her, warrior. She is lost to you forever. The Jeddak has taken Deja Thoris to be his personal slave. And the final panel. There's no captions to describe the emotion that John Carter is going through, but he has fallen to his knees with a red background behind him and red floor below him, his arm raised his head bowed, his voice crying out, Deja! With only two exclamation points, which is a pet peeve of mine. I hate it when there's only two punctuations. One punctuation is fine. Three punctuations is fine. But two just feels like you're just not going the extra mile. You know, it's like... One exclamation point says there is reason to be excited Three says it's even more. Two just feels blah, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to change the world with my personal grammar gripes. Anyway, next issue, Tars Tarkas fights alone. Again, <laughs> apparently. That poor guy, he always ends up alone. Uh, so that's the story, and that's kind of the art. Here's the problem. I mean, that whole battle scene that I just described, the art's not great. And so the final battle is described through captions, and that's good. I mean, the captions are kind of overwritten. Chris Chris Claremont, he's known for using lots and lots of words. But here, you would not know exactly what was happening if there weren't ex- uh, an explanation. 
basic anatomy is off. Poses are awkward. Characters change size. Now, specifically, I'm thinking of Gar Karis. Uh, his character changing size compared to uh, John Carter. But even faces change to where uh, you can tell who people are by their facial hair and by their the color of their hair. But from one panel to another, the, 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 the general look just changes. It feels amateurish, and I hate saying it. And again, I think it's because of a disconnect with Inker and the penciler, not any lack of talent on either of their parts. But this feels like when I was getting into comics uh, in the 90s and you had so many um, you know, small press comics, this feels like one of those small press comics where it's done by someone who you know, has some talent but just isn't quite 100% there to create a really stellar product. And this is not a stellar product. The story is interesting. And what happens after this will determine if it lives up to the Wolfman stuff. Uh, the story has promise, but the artwork in this particular issue is, uh, and I, I don't, I don't usually go there. I, I don't critique art very much because honestly, I'm more of a story guy. Uh, I read comics for the story, and so when there's art like this that's off-putting to me, it really gets in the way of the story. So I hope that the art will get better. We will find out next issue, but in the next issue, Tars Tarkas will fight alone. So we will see what happens there. Next up, we will be looking at some more Jack Kirby stuff in the Ben's Bullpen Bulletin segment of Marvel's Cosmic Comics. That means we'll be looking at uh, Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur. And also just taking a peek at what else is going on in Marvel for the month, well, the cover date month, I should say, of October 1978. The um, look, looking in the actual issues for uh, October 1978, uh, looking at the ads and stuff like that, there really isn't a lot of new stuff. I mean, you have Testers, uh, who has the um, gliders uh, gliders ad that I've seen a lot of on the back cover in full color. There's the uh, Bad News Bears Go to Japan uh, full color, full page ad on the inside front cover. And then inside, honestly... There's just a lot of ads that I've seen before, and so it's kind of boring to talk about them over and over and over again. Uh, there's the flea market ads. There's uh, you know there's a nice full page ad for Star Lord, but honestly, um, there's nothing really new or special in in here. The actual bullpen bulletin uh, does have you know just that typical thing where they're they're presenting um, just the different what what else is coming out this month? And so there is. They talk about Marvel Preview number fifteen, featuring Star Lord. Uh, they talk about Iron Man number one fifteen, uh, which will have art by John Romita Jr. Um, there's, I mean, it's just basically here what's coming. So, yeah, there's not a lot of special stuff, um, other than maybe, maybe I haven't seen this one before, but I, I, I mean, I've seen the ad before, but. Um, there is an ad for, let's see, the company's called Heroes World, but it has uh, these different toys that are related to comic books you can get. And there's the Spider-Man car, 
that comes with a spidey net. And I want to say my, my cousin might have had this, but I don't I don't know. Uh, it's made of durable plastic and it's articulated for comic action figures. And each car that you get comes with three posable three-inch figures. Spider-Man, Greed Goblin, and one other. <laughs> um, and the, the picture they have shows the Incredible Hulk, but for some reason they don't name him. Then there's a Spidey utility belt, which I know I had a friend who had this because I remember seeing this. Or a utility belt almost exactly like this. It comes with a web. It comes with a grappler. That's a string with like a plastic hook on it. It comes with handcuffs. It comes with a watch with Spider-Man's face on it. It has uh, Spider-Man on the belt buckle. And then there's a, uh, what do they call it? Oh, just a communicator that's basically, uh, I think, a fake walkie-talkie. There's a Marvel Comics mini viewer that comes with a cassette that you can put into it that has, uh, I, I, don't, I can't tell if it's you crank it and it shows a, a quick movie it says watch your own marvel movie so it might be one of those things i never saw one that had that projected this says no batteries needed so i don't know if it does project but maybe it does but i i remember my cousin having something like this that i keep talking about my cousin but you know he's two years older than me and they had they had toys before i did um they always had the toy that i wanted before i had a chance to get it so i kind of actually got to, to test it out with them but um, he had one that you put this plastic cassette in, and then you'd spin it, and it was on a, a loop, an infinite loop. And it was like um, they had the one with uh, Mickey and Donald and Goofy where they were kind of Ghostbusters. And then finally there's these, these other cars that are um, <laughs> it's Green Arrow or Captain America. The Captain America come one comes complete with shield. The Green Arrow one shoots safety-tipped arrows. So beyond that, though, I mean, there's the Daisy Rifle and... Uh, Clark Bar, Slim Jim, Slim Jim, man, they they stuck with Marvel for a long time, placing ads in in those magazines. So the other stuff uh, going on this month is like I've done before, Machine Man and Devil Dinosaur, which uh, we're on issue seven for them. And Machine Man, this issue was not a bad issue. Uh, it's called well on the cover it says with a nation against him, and then the inside. That is the, the title of the, the issue. It's edited, written, and drawn by Jack Kirby. Um, it says, embellished by Mike Royer. Coloring by P. Goldberg. Lubrication by Jim Shooter. I have no idea what that kind of... I mean, there's some sort of joke or dig going on there. But basically, Machine Man is going in for congressional um, a congressional investigation. And he's agreeing and, and being cooperative with everything that's going on. And they appreciate that. They've released him into the custody, not the custody, into the, um, oh, what do they call that? No, it is. It's the custody of um, the psychologist, Mr. Spaulding, Peter Spaulding. And so then they they head home. On their way home, Machine Man is kind of an oddity. He's kind of a um, celebrity. And everyone's really pleased to see him and excited to see him. There's another guy out there who has created a robot uh, to kind of capitalize on the craze, and he's going to have his robot defeat Machine Man and get popular, and uh, they will gain the popularity. But it's a remote-controlled robot, and Machine Man makes quick work of it. And then uh, they, he, Machine Man puts himself to sleep, powers down really low, and Peter Spaulding is kidnapped in the middle of the night by criminals. 
And so then when he doesn't show up for the congressional meeting that he's supposed to be showing up for, uh, people turn against him because now they don't trust him because he said he would do that, but now he's not doing that. And people are now all over the place looking for him. And he's just cooperating with the criminals. And um, uh, General Craig has now been sent out again to get Machine Man. And there's this congressman who's basically trying to set this all up so it turns into some sort of conflict on TV so that it can further his political career. And beyond that, I mean, it, it's a it's a decent enough story. It's it's, it's finally kind of getting into some of that um, stuff that Jack Kirby was promising that he would explore with what would happen if you had this guy next door. And, and they're talking about, you know, the congressional meeting is, is basically because there was a uh, there was a law put into effect that was to kill or destroy all of the X models of these machine men. And he's the one that survived because his creator didn't want to kill him. And so now they have to decide what to do with him. And is he human or not? And he claims that he is as human as everyone else. He just has different skin. And it would work a lot better if it was more true, I guess, as far as that kind of metaphor that maybe Jack Kirby is digging for. But he is getting into that what would happen if there was something that was the robot next door that had life, had sentience. And the other thing that I really enjoy about this is, and especially in this issue, is you kind of he, he draws each page in that six-panel tier where you basically have a six-panel grid, and he uses those to guide what the page is going to look like and the layout of the page, and he very rarely breaks away from that. Um, but in this issue, he does break away from it in one particular page where people are, are panicking about Machine Man and what's going to happen with him. And it's all these kind of fragmented pieces that look like... Maybe if you took um, gave a piece of paper to a kid and said, make me a, a puzzle... And they just cut the page, you know, in, in random zigzags and created these shapes that have uh, zigzagged edges. That's what that uh, page looks like. And it's very, very effective, especially since as you're reading along, you have this pattern that you're going through. And the pattern does not break, does not break, does not break. And then all of a sudden, boom, there it is. And and that's the kind of thing that it's, it's fun to see and it's fun uh, to see it put to really good effect by Jack Kirby because I was kind of complaining I think before about this where it feels like he's just using that grid to uh, as a cheat you know so he doesn't have to really think through what the page is going to look like but then when he decides to break away from that it's that much more effective and so it works for me as for Devil Dinosaur well <laughs> they're still up to their old antics in, in, in the prehistoric history time uh, in the in the last issue, there was all the aliens and stuff. The aliens were destroyed, and there was this kind of metal tree left behind. And so that's basically what we have going on here. I mean, this is definitely absolutely trying to riff on the um, the Genesis account with the tree, with the knowledge of good and evil and all that kind of thing. And that's what's going on here is you have um, Eve and Stonehand and Whitehair, the three other um, cave people that um, are there with Moonboy or were with Moonboy. And with Devil Dinosaur. And they, they go to the this metal tree and they find out it's not evil. It's trying to protect them. And it protects them from some dinosaurs. But then it encases them and imprisons them in a dome that it creates around them and it. And it's hanging on to them. It creates this paradise inside the dome for them. And Stonehand is not happy. He he doesn't... This is not going to work for them. This doesn't work for him. He's, he doesn't want to be a slave to anything or anyone. He... 
And so he tries to escape, and then white hair guy, he he dies because of a radiation leak. And so then they realize this is not good. He this this tree thing was going to keep us alive forever. Well, fortunately, Moonboy, as he was walking around, uh, he came across Devil Dinosaur, and he and Devil Dinosaur come to cro- come across the dome, and Devil Dinosaur helps break the dome down, and the tree, the metal tree that uh, it was controlled by a prime computer uh, is destroyed and Eve and Stonehand walk away to go find a new place to live and Devil Dinosaur and Moonboy presumably are also going to kind of go off into the sunset and they are going to um, battle the Dino Riders in next issue um, but I mean this is where Jack Kirby clearly says the tale of the demon tree will be told of course many times in many ages and each time it is told there will be slight differences and changes so that the original version will be lost and remain true only to those who took part in it which are Eve, Stonehand, Devil Dinosaur and Moonboy. And again this is you know Jack Kirby uses a lot of uh, rigid grids. Uh, he does break away from the six by or three by two six six panel grid, and does some four by uh, two by two four panel grids, and you know he uses them for effect. Um, he does. There's one really cool panel where Moonboy is swimming through a lake that has um, these Brontosaurus type dinosaurs in it, and it's a really big panel, really neat. And that's really what this comes down to is this is all about again movement, energy passion, anger, uh, strength. That's really what uh, the art in this is. Uh, done in the format for a basically a Saturday morning kind of cartoon. Although, you know, that was a, an original pitch is why he created Devil Dinosaur for a Saturday morning cartoon. Saturday morning cartoons would not have the old man caveman die of radiation poisoning. So that's that's that. The, the one other thing of note for this month is Crazy Number Forty Three. Um, that was uh, had the the parody of Jaws Two in it, and it's it's dumb. <laughs> it's it's I I I guess maybe I'm too old for the parody uh, type magazines like Mad Magazine and that kind of thing. But I don't think I am because I've enjoyed, you know, reading some of the old parodies of, of the different things in other places. But the one thing that's kind of funny is that there is a crazy interview with, um, it's Walter Cronkite in, interviewing R2-D2. And R2-D2 totally can talk. And he's like, well, why? Uh, you can talk? Sure, I can talk, can't everyone? But you didn't talk in Star Wars. We were over budget. If I talked, they would have to pay me. And and then it does. I mean, I've seen this kind of thing before, where they've had R two D two kind of living a regular life outside of the movie, you know, in Hollywood. Uh, this is the first, maybe the first one that was done. Um, they talk about uh, we all like to know what your background, what were your parents like. Well, I'm from a mixed marriage. My mo- my father was an Edsel, and my mother was a Maytag. <laughs> it's not that funny, but it's 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 good. Um, you know, for, for what it is and what is it? It's a, it's a one page comic strip. The, the Jaws thing just had just dumb, dumb jokes in it. Uh, they call the Island Enema Island instead of Amity, Amity Island. Um, there's one little bit there with uh, these two water skiers and they're, 
they see a, the fin behind him, and, and it's a guy and a girl, and the guy says, shark, shark, run for your lives, it's a man-eater. And the girl says, a man-eater? Thank heaven, I'm a girl. Um, Quick, get in the boat. I can't. Why not? I get seasick. And they're water skiing. Um, yeah, I mean, there's it, it, it's not the most clever thing I've ever seen. Clearly not the most clever thing I've ever seen, but it's there. It exists. Um, not Mar- Marvel related. There is something that um, I'm really got my interest peaked, but it's, it's by Warren and it was covered in October, 1978 and it's Warren presents star quest comics, C O M I X. And the cover is very, very clearly, um, at least I believe inspired by some of the Ralph McQuarrie art that I've seen uh, for early Star Wars designs. And right up top, it just says, Star Wars Revisited, page 22. And then Warren presents Star Quest Comics. I really want to get this comic. Um, it's it's uh, edited by Louise Simonson, or at the, I guess at the time she was Louise Jones, who I talked about just recently in uh, the It's Midnight, the Podcasting Hour podcast, um, which will be coming out soon where I, I talked about the Swamp Things first appearance and Louise Simonson was the, uh, one of the models that they took pictures, um, to, to give to, uh, Bernie Wrightson for the artwork. And so they took pictures of what the panels were going to be. And it's a really neat thing, but, um, here she is editor of this magazine from Warren. And I'm very curious, very, very curious, but yeah, so that's that's wrapping up the uh, October coverage from 1978. Uh, coming soon, I'll be taking a look at the Marvel Cosmic Comics that were cover dated November 1978 that would have gone on sale, I guess, uh, July. Is that right? August. No, August 1978. And I sometimes do this, and I'm going to go ahead and look ahead if you'll forgive me. And it looks like, yeah, it's a, it's a clear... Uh, pretty slim slim month there's star wars john carter godzilla human fly and of course machine man and devil dinosaur so well we'll see we'll see how long it takes to get through that but uh, i want to thank you for joining me i want you to please remember that you can always contact us at feedback at comic book time machine about um memories that you have about these comics and you can also um, contact us on facebook like us on facebook at facebook.com slash comic book time machine and also remember there are some other podcasts that i do appear on to talk about comics and that is um uh, the action comics weekly podcast which is bi-weekly although it's on hiatus right now but um i would talk about the segment from this anthology comic um that's called the secret six which is kind of a fun dc concept of a a-team type of superhero group and then I'm also appearing, like I said, on It's Midnight, the podcasting hour, where I talk about Swamp Thing. And so that means on the Comic Book Time Machine uh, uh, feed, there might be some Swamp Monster stuff coming up, just because that Swamp Thing scratched the itch for me. But I got a hankering for some more, so we'll see what happens. For now, I know what's going to happen next on this feed, this particular sub-feed, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, We'll be talking about Star Wars in the next segment that we do here. So thank you for listening, and Godspeed.
Thanks for listening to the Comic Book Time Machine's Marvel's Cosmic Comics feed. You can find more discussion of many, many more comics like Superman and Spider-Man, What Ifs and Elseworlds, The Six Million Dollar Man and Batman, comics seven days old and seven decades old, on our main feed, which you can find on iTunes or at comicbooktimemachine.com. We'd also love it if you join us on Facebook at facebook.com or on Twitter, where we are at Comic Time. new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The Podcasting Hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware.